Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, I have again on my podcast, uh, Gregory Cochran. Oh, hi, Greg. Hello. So we are going to talk today about the uh, genetic history of Europe. And Greg knows vastly more about this topic than I do, so I'll be mostly asking him questions. So, Greg, from our previous conversations, um, I understand we've learned a lot recently about the genetic history of Europe, and why is that? Well, the fundamental reason is advances in genetics um, of two kinds. Uh, part of it is more advanced analysis of the genetics of living people. The other part is uh, analysis of ancient DNA, which we have quite a few examples from Europe and related regions where things are well enough preserved going back thousands of years that we can get pretty good information. So, like, I have my DNA scanned by 23andMe. You're saying we can do basically the equivalent with, like, bodies that are thousands of years old? Usually not quite as well as that, but we can – but see, there's tremendous amounts of information if you do this perfectly. You know, there's billions of bases of uh, lots of information. Uh, it vary, The quality varies on how well they can do it with bodies from the past. Sometimes it's almost as good as a living person. Other times you get partial information, but partial information might still be, you know, a very large amount of information compared to what you might be able to see from a, just say the shape of a, of this of of the skull or something. It's, there's a lot of information there. So sometimes they can get uh, intermediate amounts of information that are still enough to tell you tremendous amounts. Okay. And what's the approach for using this information to figure out like what's going on in, in, in Europe's past? Well, they have systematic ways of uh, calculating whether, for example, uh, uh, two groups, for example, uh, have sort of split like in, in, so that they are – or, or you can systematically see if somebody must have mixed with someone else to generate the, the patterns you see today or see in ancient DNA. Uh, you can tell if one group is related to another. You can tell just, you know, going over time very, to various extents if it's descended from another group. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, we, we see things like this on an individual basis where somebody uh, gets their genome scanned and it tells you, that most of your ancestry is from group X and most is from group Y. We can do similar things with ancient DNA and we can do even more once we have a number of different samples of ancient DNA, uh, things of that sort. So okay. you can, you can trace family trees and you can trace admixtures. Okay. So to like 23 and me figured out I'm half Ashkenazi Jewish and my son is three fourths Ashkenazi Jewish, which is right unless people have been lying to me. So we can do kind of the same thing with people with the DNA from ancient um, bodies. Right. And, and another thing which we can do to some extent is we can see, like suppose you had a group that had not has been in a given place a long time and is not mixed, which would be unusual, but they, because they can still change. They might change by natural selection. Uh, and we can see some of that too. Has there been enough time for natural selection to have worked? Given how some, far yeah. Uh, I mean, if we're talking – Let's say since the beginnings of agriculture in Europe, which might be eight to nine thousand years ago, the answer is at least some, yes. Okay. So let's imagine that one group conquered another. Could we distinguish between them conquering the other group versus them just sort of coming together and living in harmony? 
Uh, you know, I don't know if harmony is all that common, but sometimes we could. Uh, sometimes we might not be able to. Uh, uh, one guide to this is if we look at examples in history where we actually do know what happened, that should tell us some of the things that are possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, for example, uh, you might look at Latin America. Uh, in, in, in some countries in Latin America, let's say Mexico, uh, the ancestry is a bit more than half American Indian, more like 40% Spanish, mm-hmm. something like 5% African. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, you could imagine they all, you know, had a big picnic and decided to stay there. Of course, you would have to throw away all of written history since we actually know what happened. But there are hints of the genetics. If you look at the Y chromosomes in uh, in Mexico, their majority, I don't remember exactly how much, but more than half uh, Spanish, uh, whereas... Wait, so wait, the, the, now, the Y chromosome, that just goes from father to son, right? True. Okay. Right. So it tells you something about the male part of the ancestry. Uh, but in Mexico, although... The overall ancestry is more than half Indian. The Y chromosome ancestry is more than half Spanish. Or if you looked at the oh, so um, wait, let's, how how could that happen? If Spanish men marry Indian women. Okay, so if the Spanish men marry Indian women, and then the Indian men didn't do all that well in, in terms of reproduction, right? Then you would expect today we'll see the Y chromosome matching on um, that of Spanish people. Well, again, not extent. entirely, but, but it's, you see more Y chromo- Spanish Y chromosomes than you see overall Spanish ancestry. So that tells you that, uh, you know, to, to a significant extent, it was more Spanish men and Indian women. It, I mean, it's, I'm not saying there are no American Indian Y chromosomes. There are some, but they're less than half. I don't remember the exact number, perhaps, 35%, some 40. Uh, another way you can do a similar thing is you look at mitochondrial genetics. They come only down the female line. Okay. And so even though, uh, like most ancestry in over all of Mexico, I think this varies from place to place in Mexico and from pop, you know, from group to group. But, uh, although, uh, most ancestry overall, uh, in the other chromosomes, is Indian, even more is uh, of the mitochondria are American Indian. But th- this all fits with what history says. Uh, the people who came from Spain were mostly men. They mostly married Indian women. Uh, this is well known. Uh, it's documented in some detail. Uh, uh, I mean, there were some Spanish women who moved over, but not so many compared to the number of men. So there's uh, there's no real mystery about this, but the genetics fits with what we actually know, which is encouraging. Uh, so, but the point is, if there was a population that had a similar pattern where we had, we did not have a written record, we could figure out that it was that in some ways it was somewhat similar to what happened in the Spanish conquest of Mexico. I mean, at least in terms of the genetic pattern, that doesn't tell you exactly how people interacted. Although, but it gives you pretty strong hints. Yes. Okay, so we're saying if we detect differences in the Y chromosome compared to you know, mitochondrial DNA, then that that can tell us um, which population, which 
people reproduced and perhaps where newcomers came, whether newcomers were male or female. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, both are possible, but the question is how often they actually happen. Uh, 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 not so much in Europe, but this is an example. Uh, people have been interested in Polynesian ancestry mm-hmm. and they found, uh, like the language, uh, and most of the cultural baggage started out with a group that was on Taiwan. Okay. Uh, influenced by people in South China. They developed some very good methods of uh, sailing and went, explored and settled many places. Mm-hmm. Some of which already had people living there. Some of which had been uninhabited. Uh, and, uh, they have, but today Polynesians, uh, they ha- maybe 70% of their ancestry is of this Taiwanese sort. But about 20% is from places, people more typical of New Guinea, mm-hmm. which is a fairly different group. Uh, and although about 20% of their total ancestry is from New Guinea, something like 70% of their Y chromosomes are from New Guinea. Oh, so it was the men who went exploring. Well, no, what it was was this. Uh, we now have some ancient DNA from early days in the first island settled in Polynesia. Mm-hmm. And in those days, it was all Taiwanese. Okay. The first guys who got there were all Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, and then you know, oh, the newcomers. Then apparently somebody came and conquered them and and largely replaced the Y chromosome lines, but without bringing very many women along. So the rest of the genome did not change so much. So what it looks as if is a you know an early set of Polynesians who were essentially all Taiwanese in their ancestry or very close to that landed in places like Tonga, which had been uninhabited before. Mm-hmm. And then sometime later, basically a bunch of guys, probably almost all guys, came from somewhere settled by uh, the sort of people who live in New Guinea, which could also include the Solomon Islands, and conquered the place. Mm-hmm. They did not change the language, but they must have killed a lot of the local men and replaced them. That, that sounds like there was a scene in Game of Thrones where – there was a group of men that were sort of giving up on what they were doing, and they're like, "Hey, let's just go find an island. We'll kill all the men, and you know, we'll, we'll have children with the women." So they're well, saying clear, that, clearly, we should not have let those Melanesians watch that show. Yes, well, two <laughs> thousand years ago, you watch TV, uh, and it causes a causal violence. Uh, okay, <laughs> but by the way, some people attempt to construct scenarios where this happens in a peaceful way. In this particular case, I don't think that's very likely. Yeah, this would be the men are like, God, you guys are just you newcomer men are so much better than we are. Please take our women. We'll just you know we'll we'll just go play video games for the rest of our lives. And well, I think there may be some people like that in the video game community. I'm, uh, but uh, I did see somebody suggesting something like this, and well, this will come up again when we get to certain points <laughs> in in European prehistory. I I will bring it up again. Let's okay. go ahead. Okay, so yeah, so why don't we turn to Europe? So I, I know the anthropologists were teaching us that, you know, if you see cha- – we, we observe changes in the, the artifacts, like changes in pots, but the mm-hmm. anthropologists have been telling us, well, that's all due to trade. It was mostly people stayed where they were. Maybe they, you know, they migrated peacefully, but there really wasn't violent clashes or anything. So that was sort well, of the prevailing academic view, I think, until recently. Uh, yeah, right? It's it's come and gone. Now, uh, for example, think roughly what time were you taking a course where people said like that? Oh, a long where people time. talked like that? Yeah. No, uh, 
by my standards, quite recently. Okay. Uh, well, say what decade? The 90s? Yeah, that's 30 the years ago, maybe. Okay. All right. Well, that's what they were saying then. And that's probably what some of them are saying now. But if so, they're going to have to work hard at ignoring the recent genetic evidence. <laughs> but if you go back further, which, by the way, it seems like a long time even to me, but if you go back to, say, the 1920s people, or 30s, people did not say those things. They assumed that at least in many cases, perhaps most of the time, if you see a big change in the uh, customs and the artifacts, you know, like, say, going from from a level to a, a shallower level, which is more recent mm -hmm. uh, archaeologically, you say, well, previously these people uh, built, you know, they were agriculturalists, they built uh, longhouses, they lived in little villages scattered through Germany, and then we go to a higher layer where there are no buildings at all, and the only thing we find of the human efforts are, are graves where people are buried with uh, war axes. Yes. That's... Okay. They, in, people in, say, 1926, who already knew some of this stuff, not as well as we do now because they didn't have carbon dating, for example, and many other advanced tools, <laughs> mm -hmm. they assumed that somebody had come in and conquered the other people, perhaps killed a lot of them, and taken over. That's how people used to talk about this. Post-World War II, people increasingly decided that, that, that they didn't like that interpretation, and they talked more about various kinds of peaceful change, uh, trade. Uh, I mean, like, and, and by the way, there's some logic to it uh, in the sense that when you see a new kind of artifact, someone had to originate it somewhere. It can't endlessly be traced back to another group it came from. Someone must occasionally invent new things, or there won't be any new things. Yeah. Now, the, but the other question is, how many, when you see something new, is it usually borrowed from somebody else, or is it uh, usually original or local in its origin? And it probably depends. Uh, but, I mean, typically, if you started speaking English, for example, and driving a car, the odds are you didn't invent the language and the car by yourself. Yeah. Uh, uh, unless you're, you know, really clever. Uh, but... Uh, so we all know there's a lot of imitation. We also know there are examples in recent times which, like, why are people uh, serving gyros in a, in a Greek restaurant? I said, because they're Greek, because mm -hmm. that's what they do. Uh, of course, there's other things, like, why are they uh, uh, selling chow mein in a Chinese restaurant? I says, I don't know. Nobody ate it in China. We kind of invented it here. Uh, so, you know, both things are possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's generally true that long-range communication is a lot easier today than it was then, Yeah. long-range travel. Uh, and the, the fact that the Japanese drink Coca-Cola, uh, that's an example of a widespread cultural thing, but that may not have happened quite as much 6,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, we're pretty sure it, certainly Japan was not imitating a lot of Western customs in those days. Um, at any rate, so archaeologists increasingly became uh, – you know, I don't quite know the word for this. They rejected uh, explanations that involved lots of migration, populations uh, conquering each other, populations replacing each other. They tended to be against those and usually assumed that there was something wrong with any explanation of that kind. Okay. Uh, they were wrong. So they're basically saying that Conan the Barbarian interpretation of history, that was completely silly. That was pure fiction. 
And that um, Hitler was an anomaly. What Hitler tried to do was very anomalous. You know, having somebody do a lot of something is not a good way of proving that nobody does things of that sort. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, although that's sort of the reaction. Uh, people said, well, Hitler did a lot of things like trying to replace groups and exterminate groups and move people around. By the way, Stalin did a certain amount of that too. Uh, uh, but somehow many people's reaction was, well, that, the fact that it just happened must proves that it can't. Oh, speaking of uh, Conan the Barbarian, you know, that series of books yeah. was written by a guy named Robert Howard around 1930. Mm -hmm. And he got a lot of his ideas from of the way, typical things, think, way things might work, uh, not counting magic and uh, monsters, uh, from contemporary uh, books on archaeology and prehistory. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's one reason that, for example, there is a, a piece in which he sort of talks about the background of, uh, you know, sort of like the story guide for all these stories, you know, the hi the history of the world that these stories are set in. Mm -hmm. Called the high, the, it's an essay called The Hyborian Age. And if you look at it, it's a lot closer to what you see in David Reich's book than most contemporary archaeological work. Uh, and it, it, you know, his general picture of how the world works was apparently, except for perhaps too much magic, was more accurate than the most typical book on prehistory by a professional anthropologist okay. or archaeologist. Uh, but it's not because he came to all these conclusions by himself. He was reading what was popular in 1930. What was popular in 1930 was, was on the whole, not everywhere, but on the whole, more accurate than what people were writing in 2010. It's a good example of the inevitable progress of science. Yeah. Uh, or turning uh, away from science for reasons of politics. Well, sort of. Although, I mean, I had never completely understood this. Uh, uh, but another thing is that it wasn't just movements. A, bit, uh, a good part of this was uh, dis, dis, discounting violence uh, as a as an important factor. In although there's obviously an awful lot of it in written history. Yeah. But uh, people, you know, the general picture that was sort of considered the null model was that prehistory wasn't very much like actual history. Uh, but well, there's some ways in which that's true. I mean, for example, uh, if you're talking about the part of it that involves writing, well, people weren't doing it yet. And there were other more complicated customs that didn't exist yet. Uh, I mean, people traded, but they didn't yet have money in the form of coins. Mm -hmm. You know, there certainly are differences. But, you know, the idea that, you know, things were much more peaceful in such situations. Yeah, well, that that was a mistake. Okay, so let, let's turn to Europe now. So yes. what, like, what's the starting point? Like, what do we know about the first people in Europe? Well, I mean... There have been some kind of hominid in Europe for a long time, probably more than a million years. Uh, uh, and what what does the group, term hominid mean? Uh, something like a guy. Okay, so uh, human-like. It's 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 a yeah, it's a wider class, but it includes humans. Okay. So in practice, that it, uh, it might mean Homo erectus, it might mean Neanderthals, it might mean Denisovans. In terms of groups, we at least know a little bit about have some skeletal information. Uh, so. You know, but most of that is you know a distant prequel to our main story. But you could say there were groups like Neanderthals and and earlier groups, perhaps that we would call archaic humans, close to, close to modern humans in some ways, but probably significantly different in others, that existed for a long time in Europe, um, and then about forty five thousand years ago, modern humans showed up and 
largely replaced the uh, the the archaic humans, the Neanderthals. In Europe, that would be Neanderthals. Uh, we have, uh, but interestingly enough, those early humans. Now, by the way, they also mixed with Neanderthals. Some we know this. Uh, essentially, everybody uh, outside of Africa has a little bit of Neanderthal ancestry, uh, maybe a couple of percent, and uh, which probably happened early, since you see it everywhere. It probably happened somewhere in the Middle East, uh, which is sort of the first step you take as you go outside of Africa. And you actually predicted that, didn't you, in the book you co-authored? Yeah, uh, I thought it likely. Uh my argument was that Neanderthals were had not separated from modern humans so long ago that uh, that sterility or the inability to breed was very likely. We know, you know, we know many examples of species of mammals that are essentially, you know, sister species. They split apart. We have estimates for how long, and sometimes they have problems reproducing if they've been separated long enough. But we know how long that takes, and it's longer by a factor of two or three. Than the modern humans and Neanderthals had been separated, so it was likely that we could reproduce with them, maybe with some occasional problems, but you know most of the time you would get babies out of it. And my part of it is my picture of humanity, uh, even ancient humanity that we don't know a lot about, says things like that would happen occasionally. <laughs> now a few a few people had. Uh, I think most people were arguing for biological incompatibility, but there were a few people saying they were too different. We had high moral standards. We would never <laughs> have done anything like that. And I said, well, if so, those high moral standards have decayed with time. Uh, yeah, because yeah. I know of examples of people who did some fairly surprising things. Well, uh, the, the fact that we have laws against bestiality is a sign of certain things that must be happening for the fact. Well, it does. It proves it must happen at least occasionally. Yes, and it does happen at least occasionally. Uh, yep. Uh, and uh, or for that matter, people just having sex in ways that they wake up the next morning and say, "My God, what was I thinking?" Yeah, well, that happens, but well, maybe it, they weren't thinking, and those things do happen. Although, you know, it wouldn't really surprise me if there are at least a few cases where they kind of got along. I mean, I, nobody knows, okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, may, my favorite scenario involves some uh, young human woman uh, who's like bathing in stream, and she's seen by this Neanderthal hunter coming back. And, you know, and by the way, we now insert a bunch of pros, which I've ripped completely out of a bodice ripper novel. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and they try to communicate and at last, his his near manhood would no longer be denied. Okay, at any rate, enough of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, you know, they were different. We don't know exactly how different. We know something about artifacts. We know that Neanderthal artifacts were simpler than ours and that they changed slowly compared to ours. And so you have to think they were different. There are certain other things we did that they did at, least, at most very rarely, such as uh, – you know, fairly complicated burial rituals. Uh, but, you know, we don't know everything. Like only recently we found out that it appears that they would collect the claws of things like eagles and hawks and use them as decoration of some sort. So they Perhaps have some art. But we were probably uh, smarter than they were. I would guess yes, but I don't know. I mean, there are – I mean, there are six other possibilities. As You know, it's clear that we largely replaced them. That much we know. 
We also know that we picked up a few genes from them that are have become relatively common because they were somehow useful. Uh, some cases we have a little idea of why they're useful. Uh, we have found some things which are probably no. Wait, just to go back to that. How yes. do we know that the fact that we picked up genes from them? Why does that imply that the genes, at least back then, were useful? If we pick if the overall level of Neanderthal mixture is something like a couple of percent, mm -hmm. and you find a particular gene which is at 50 percent, it, it turns out you can make a pretty good argument that it probably did something useful and spread because it was more useful. Okay. By the way, there are other Neanderthal genes that nobody has. Apparently, they were they didn't fit very well with modern humans. Mm -hmm. So both things happen. So I mean, there are some things that got gradually reduced or even eliminated. There's other things that became quite common. There's a bunch of genes involving keratin, which is the main protein in skin and hair, which certain variants involving keratin uh, are at like 50, 50 percentile, 50 percent frequency in Europeans. So, you know, some of the genes involved that affected Neanderthal skin and hair are now common. I don't think people have gotten down to finding exact details of what those do, but we do know that. Uh, we know that, uh, for example, what were some other examples? There are some uh, genes involved in uh, the immune system, which have which were Neanderthal versions were uh, uh, oh, have been picked up and are now common in people in Europe and also in many of these com these things apply to Asia as well. Mm -hmm. uh, people in Asia may also have since they also have Neanderthal ancestry, they too have high levels of at least high frequencies of at least a few Neanderthal genes that have somehow turned out to be useful. I don't. We understand some of what these things are. We don't understand all of them. Although they don't have to be useful now, right? They just were useful. Well, they have back. been useful on the whole over the time since. In fact, some of them could have – it might have been some of them were more useful in the past and not today. It could have been that some of them weren't especially useful until perhaps the world changed in some way that they uh, – you know, like there could be an Neanderthal gene that was useful among people who were farmers, but it wouldn't really increase until farming was invented. So, you know, we don't know. Oh, I see. But – well, but actually, some of it we will get to know because if we have enough ancient DNA samples, at some point we can actually trace how these things change with time. So we might know some of this. Like one thing we do know is that for your just your generic piece of DNA from Neanderthals, on the whole, you know, with with important exceptions, it's they've gradually been decreasing. So if you just took a random chunk of a Neanderthal chromosome. It like works slightly less well in humans than the typical human version. Mm -hmm. So there's been some probably it went you know like like what was once the three percent of mixtures uh, in terms of in, in areas where the genes actually do something is maybe now down to two. There's been some gradual decline. Okay. Uh, but at any rate, so we had early uh, people moving into Europe, and uh, now all of this is affected. You know, greatly by you know where the ice ages are. You know, during the ice ages, some of Europe, or a little of Europe, or it depends on you know how what phase of the ice age you're in. There are times in which only southern Europe is habitable, in which you know the ice covers much of France and Germany, mm -hmm. all of Scandinavia. There's other times, different parts of the cycle, where it could be not as bad. Uh, it might be only Scandinavia, or there's other periods like today in which there's essentially no ice age at all. So in 
all that's actually important background for what's going on at any given time in Europe. Now, for the time we're most interested in, which is since the birth of agriculture, that starts around when the ice ice is really pulling back. Uh, uh, it's already pulled back quite a bit by the time farmers start moving into Europe. And when so is most that? of the time, ten thousand years ago. Okay. Nine thousand years ago, something like that. The the ice is really melting, really retreating. You know, there, I think there was still some in Scandinavia at this point. That was where it lasted the longest. Anyhow, there were things that happened in between modern humans moving to Europe and the beginning of our main story, uh, and they sometimes involved one group of hunter-gatherers replacing another. Uh, that happened more than once. It wasn't just modern humans replacing Neanderthals. Other groups replaced each other. Uh, we know this happened in ancient times, even among hunter-gatherers, but we – but the main part of our story is about Europe since the beginning of agriculture. Okay. And, and of course, it, it has happened again and again. Uh, so uh, – uh, but, but the th you know, our, like some people might say the exact same people who first settled Europe after Neanderthals, they're still like – most Europeans are descended from them. The answer is no. I said, well, are they descended mostly from the second group that moved in? No. Although you might find a trace. Are they descended mostly from the third group that moved in? No. There's been a lot of turnover. Okay. So, and the people who were there originally, almost all of them died out. The men and women did not succeed in having children that have survived to this time? We don't see – I I mean the answer is somewhere between very low and zero ancestry in modern Europeans from that group. Okay. Uh, not a lot. Uh, uh, and by the way – there are several ways. I mean, like, for one thing that happened is in between 45,000 years and now, there was a time called the glacial maximum, which where the world was in fact quite cold and probably only small parts of Europe were even habitable. Europe is pretty far north. I mean, that meant people were living in places like Spain and southern Italy and Greece. And in northern Europe, maybe nobody was living there. So that's one way for a group to be eradicated. It, I mean, sometimes it may well be somebody comes in and, and pushes you out, but it could also be that you're just at a place where the climate turns bad uh, and uh, it's just not possible to make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know the details of this. I mean, and it's hard to see how we're going to. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, there has been – but we do see repeated change. Okay. And do we know if it was someone from outside Europe coming in or might it have been one subgroup in Europe just taking over? In different phases, I think you see some of each. Okay. Although the only thing you can say, you see very early as modern humans moved out of Africa, cross your fingers because we're not absolutely sure there wasn't an earlier stage either than this, although it can't be hugely significant. But one of the very early things that happened was kind of a split between East and West in Eurasia. Okay, uh, and I can say that for the most part, the groups that were replacing each other in Europe, some of them had probably held out in part of Europe. Some of them came from outside, but they didn't, as far as we know, except for a very minor extent, come all the way from China. You can even a long time ago, you can tell at least the eastern branch or the western branch of people in Eurasia, mm -hmm. uh, which probably boils down to geography. You know things like the Himalaya Mountains really – you know, it's not utterly impossible to get to the other side, but it's so hard. There's not a lot of traffic back and forth for – you know, and, people, and groups start to drift apart. Yeah, it's uh, hard to bring an army. Well, armies had been invented for most of this time, but like 
you can sometimes see traces of Eastern ancestry in some of these early groups in Europe, but mostly it's like different groups in Western Eurasia are pushing each other around. I mean, which is only because, if nothing else, because they're closer to each other. Uh, and during this period, we didn't see any new groups move up there from Africa, as far as I know. You know, we keep finding things out here. So, you know, like anything I say, it's always possible that we'll find out the things I may say may have happened, but there, we may have missed certain other things that changed the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the beginning of our main story is probably when farmers start moving into Europe, I think. Okay. Where did the farmers come from? Uh, most of them seem to have come from uh, what is now Turkey. Okay. Uh, you know, the place where agriculture was invented is you know the Fertile Crescent – you know, basically places where you can raise things on rain rather than more sophisticated things like, you know, like irrigation was not really invented at the very first stage. Mm-hmm. So you have mountains in southern Turkey and northern Syria uh, uh, and, and also mountains in the eastern edge of Iraq and on the western edge of Iran. Mm-hmm. Those areas are apparently where agriculture was first invented. Even there it may have been sort of simultaneous you know, with slightly different flavors to it in different parts of this region. So, uh, and by the way, agriculture was independently invented later in other places, but some place had to be first. And as far as we can tell, northern Middle East is is the first place. Okay. So, and so people developed a suite of crops that many of which are still used today. Um, some of which we use more complicated variants than we did then, but things like wheat, barley, uh, certain things like lentils. Things like uh, uh, some of the early, a few things, uh, you know, so the first domesticated animals other than the dog, people domesticated cows, people domesticated goats, people domesticated sheep. Uh, Had they domesticated horses yet? That comes a bit later. Okay. So, you know, you might, you know, a lot of this stuff. You know, there's kind of a package of early things that people, the first farmers in the Middle East had going. And the things I said are, that's most of the package. Uh, uh, and there were, you know, for a while there were kind of def- different regional flavors, but these guys weren't incredibly far apart. And, you know, different domesticates got exchanged until people in a wide belt are, are sort of have access to this whole package of something like seven crops and three domesticated animals, something like that, cows. Uh, sheep. Sheep were different back then. They didn't. They weren't woolly. It was more like hair on them. <laughs> they, 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 you know, it was not something you could easily make into clothes. So you're eating uh, the meat. Yeah. Uh, uh, they might have milked them some too. Uh, uh, so they had, you know, they had cows. Uh, uh, they had, uh, like in the Zagros Mountains in eastern, uh, you know, on the on the border of Iran and Iraq which is where part of this was happening. That's apparently where the goat was domesticated. People there, you know, before they picked up the whole package, they were probably first goat herders. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the places where, uh, you know, the exact, uh, you know, like you have hints because you look at wild ancestors of these plants, you figure whoever domesticated the plant, it comes from a region where the plant actually grew, which yeah. are those regions, you know, they're limited. They're not every possible place. So, you know, you know something about where things originated. Then you have archaeology when you start finding evidence of these things. So places like northern Syria, southern Turkey, that's where probably where wheat was first grown. And, I, and by the way, if I was wrong, it was actually 
200 miles in some other direction. That could happen. But it's in that general vicinity. Uh, so some of these things we know. Uh, okay, and, so these, uh, these first farmers, they had a, a they set a set of tools and they were able to right, get a lot more calories per acre. Yes, their numbers – you tend to support a lot more people. Now, by the way, this probably improved with time as, as they developed more things to grow uh, and so forth. Like, like here's an example. Uh, suppose at first you had a group that was living very, you know, a very hard, far, large part of their diet was wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out there's a particular vitamin-like substance that you don't find much of in wheat. So you could end up with a shortage of that if you're mainly living on wheat. Mm-hmm. It's a thing called ergothionine, which you can get in a health store. It's not vitamin pills because as yet nobody knows what it does. Uh, however, it turns out there's a particular molecule that's a transporter for this. You know, it helps grab it uh, in, in digestion. And among these very early wheat farmers, a variant of this that was better at holding on to ergothionine became quite common. Mm-hmm. So you see this, for example, in some of their – it's like maybe 40% of their descendants today will have a copy of this version that – is better at holding on to ergothionine, but it probably doesn't matter as much as it used to because, you know, for some time people have had more choices than just wheat. Right. But it was long enough that it became fairly common in places like Southern Europe, which was largely settled from people in this vicinity. Uh, so, you know, already, you know, it's people are starting to change. I mean, I'm sure they changed in many ways because one thing that happens besides having more people is you're, you're not moving around all the time. You're more sedentary. You have to take care of a field. You have to keep, you know, animals from. You have to protect your fields, you know, and and, and uh, you know, kill weeds, harvest it, plant it. You tend not to move around as much. Uh, you also have something to lose. I mean, for example, suppose you have storage bins and they're full of grain. Somebody could steal it. In the past, it was it was harder to just steal stuff. Uh, there wasn't that much portable wealth. Uh, some people think the beginnings of governments has to do with having stored, easily stealable stuff. Yeah, you, you need to organize to have a protection service. And well, then, only because of all the other thieves, well, but yeah, yes. But... <laughs> uh, so, you know, the thieves locally say, well, you need to listen to us to protect you from the other thieves. Well, uh, this is called a government. Uh, the uh, look can eventually acquire other uh, uh, functions as well. Uh uh, like one interesting example is there are people, some kinds of crops tend to be grown. Uh, they, they, they may last in the ground. Let's say something like sweet potatoes, but mm-hmm. they don't store very well on a bin. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tax those people. Yeah, you can't see and, what you know, they have. For simple, and some places that depended more on root crops didn't end up with much of a government. Places like New Guinea mm-hmm. where they're growing taro and other things. Uh, and this may have been a factor in parts of sub-Saharan Africa too. Uh, you know, like in a sense, uh, you know, grain fuels the state. Uh, yeah. But uh, at any rate, so these guys were farming, and their numbers expanded. They started uh, like one interesting thing, by the way, is that uh, if you look along the west, you know, the east coast of the Mediterranean, places in Turkey and what's Israel. Uh, uh, Lebanon and so forth. There were people there. They weren't too different from each other, perhaps because there weren't huge geographical barriers between each other. Mm-hmm. And um, and, the, and even though they weren't incredibly far away, the people in the eastern area, in the Iranian area, were genetically kind of different. They probably looked fairly different. Now today, 
those groups are sort of thoroughly mixed all over the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But back then they weren't, even though they weren't incredibly far apart. That's sort of a general fact about the late Ice Age. Groups that weren't too far apart could be genetically quite different. Mm -hmm. I don't think we understand exactly why. Some of it may have been, like part of it is, like not long before the end of the Ice Age was the most one of the most intense parts of the Ice Age, uh, the glacial maximum, and the world was kind of a difficult place. There, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of deserts and things that may have acted as geographical barriers between populations. Uh, you know, the fraction of the world that was very easy to live in was was a lot smaller than it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, any rate, uh, so we have. Uh, these early farmers, we have the Western farmers in the Middle East and you have the Eastern farmers. Although after a while, they've kind of shared their crops. Mm -hmm. They're using both. And what they do, which is – and this is interesting because many people have invoked this as a model, for example, of, that might drive the spread of languages and other things. And they're right, but their timing was kind of wrong. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Who was the uh, – Renfrew uh, was suggesting that – you know. Europe had been populated by farmers out of the Middle East, and that's how the Indo-European languages spread. Mm -hmm. But that's – and it was populated by such people, but that's not how the Indo-European languages spread because they came later. Uh, so these guys first start – you know, they may have first settled some of the Aegean islands, and then they got to Greece, mm -hmm. and then they uh, were settling area, various areas in Greece. Some of them were moving farther north. Some of them started moving along the coasts. So you had farmers with basically this toolkit. Some of them ended up going up the Danube once they got that far north. And there, there already were humans living in these areas, right? They were hunter-gatherers? Yes. There were hunter-gatherers that lived all through Europe who were genetically, again, fairly different from these guys from the Middle East. Uh, they didn't independently develop agriculture, although some of them may eventually adopted it. But mostly agricultural agriculture spread by Middle Eastern farmers spreading. So these Middle Eastern fa farmers, they had two basic routes. One was moving up the Danube. Mm -hmm. The other way was going along the northern coasts of the Mediterranean. So they would they, – they started out in somewhere probably along the northwest Greek coast, somewhere in that vicinity. And then they moved over to Italy and settled parts of Italy. They settled Sicily. They settled Sardinia. Then they moved and they settled southern France. Then they moved along the coast – of Spain and all around the coast of Spain. And eventually they ended up meeting the other branch somewhere in, in France. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that some, like the branch that went up the Danube kept a certain amount of uh, contact for a long time with its roots. There was a particular kind of seashell in the Aegean that they did various things with, uh, spondylus, mm -hmm. and they were trading it for all the way to the region, which is now Paris for perhaps, I forget, a thousand years or something, although eventually they must have gotten bored with it. I mean, but uh, so all of these groups, or almost all of them anyhow, there is some indication that they may, may have a separate group that may have been more like the Eastern Middle Easterners in the very far south of Greece, the Peloponnese. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but generally, these people spread all over Europe. They mix some with the uh, previous uh, hunter-gatherers, Whose hunter-gatherers basic way of living you might compare to Indians who didn't have agriculture, say Indians in Canada, uh, or Indians a little before uh, uh, some of the, their crops uh, were introduced that far north. I mean, like Indians in California didn't didn't farm, so you know 
or Indians in the Pacific Northwest didn't farm. That you might compare them to the sort of life that these hunter gatherers lived in uh, Europe. Um, the uh, there was some mixing with the hunter gatherers, but not at least at first a tremendous amount. The farmers spread all over Europe, all over Europe. And one of the interesting things is, you see, they are genetically fairly similar to a population that still exists today. It's essentially a population that was off in a corner somewhere. It got settled by these people, and then no really major population movements touched it ever again. Oh, what place Sar is that? Sa Sardinia. In particular, people who live up in the highlands of Sardinia. Mm-hmm. So they, they survived the previous the, – the future waves of genocide and conquest. Well, lots of people – they're not the only people survived, but they survived without – with being much less affected than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, if you look at the genetics of ancient DNA from this, these early farmers, you will find early farmers in Germany. They look a lot like Sardinians genetically. You can mm -hmm. find early farmers in France. They look like Sardinians. You can, I mean, and you look at the ones that were in Greece uh, or Bulgaria. They look like Sardinians. There are people like this. By the way, they're also persisting hunter-gatherers up in Scandinavia. But the farmers, the farmers in Scandinavia look like Sardinians genetically. The population of England and Ireland, say, 6,000 years ago, they're you know, some of the last groups to be settled, mm -hmm. the last areas to be settled. They look like Sardinians. Everybody... All the, I mean, Europe had been covered with farmers, at least most of Europe. I think, I'm not sure how far they got into places like Russia or the Baltic. And they look genetically, they have mixed some with the previous, uh, inhabitants, but not enormously. They're probably 90% what they started out as being, uh, which is out of Turkey and mm -hmm. the Middle East. Uh, by the way, simultaneously, uh, you know, farmers want to move to a place where there are no farmers. That's where there's open land. Yes. So there were there were farmers from uh, the area of Israel, a little farther south, who were genetically not too different from the ones in Turkey, mm -hmm. who were moving into Egypt and North Africa. And later, some of their descendants moved even further into Africa. But most of the ancestors of the peoples in North Africa and Egypt are fair, are from the Middle East in this wave. While as another group of people you know, the guys who were to the east were moving east, farming places in Iran and India. So farmers were expanding in all directions. By the way, these other groups don't appear to have had the same languages as far as we know. Uh, but uh, And the eastern ones are genetically more distant from the, you know, the eastern Middle Eastern types are genetically more distant from the western Middle Eastern types. So anyhow, so let's say 6,000 years ago, uh, Europe has farmers – now, those farmers don't farm in exactly the same way as modern people. They, uh, they tend to specialize on certain kinds of kind of easy-to-farm kinds of land, easy for their techniques. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of soil called loess soil, which is from uh, drifting soil blowing in the wind. Mm -hmm. It tends to be fairly rich, and also it's fairly easy. Like, like you can imagine another soil, which is – Almost like, you know, it's like clay and it's thick and it's actually sort of physically hard to push a plow through it or something. Some, it's actually some of it quite good soil, but it's hard to do with the techniques they had back then. You know, thick black soil, like in the American South, you might call it gumbo. Mm -hmm. They didn't like to farm that kind of place. and I don't think they did it. Uh, they like sort of uh, light soils kind of where, uh, where, where you can, uh, you know, scratch a furrow fairly easily. 
Um, and so they farmed in that kind of area typically, although I presume with time they must have somewhat expanded you know, what their methods would deal with. But because of this and also for other reasons, I'm sure they, there's a million things people learned about farming in the days since these times. Uh, their total numbers were not as high as you – they're nothing compared – they were a lot lower than today and they were also a lot lower than say in classical times. In classical times, there might have been you know more than 10 million people in France. Back in these days, let's say 6,000 years ago, there was a good deal less. I don't know, 2 million? I'm and, guessing. And were the hunter-gatherers surviving in the land that wasn't good for farming? Apparently, yes, uh, And because one of the things that first seems strange is over the next couple of millennia, gradually the amount of hunter-gatherer ancestry we see in these farming groups is increasing. You can't have that happen unless the hunter-gatherers are still there. And in fact, we found some groups where the hunter-gatherers, you can see 2,000 years later, they were still there, and some of them hadn't mixed too much. But eventually, they did mix. And, and, and there's probably also a certain combination of some hunter-gatherers uh, picking up some of the techniques and perhaps becoming farmers themselves. But so by the time by the time this finally settles down, uh, maybe at this point the ancestry is only 70% Middle Eastern or 80, something like that. And, and, and there's now more farmer – there's no, now more hunter-gatherer ancestry than they hit, had been. But, it, but eventually the hunter-gatherers are all absorbed or gone. Okay. But that is only the beginning. So, you know, if we looked at Europe 6,000 years ago, oh, and we have found DNA. Like one famous example is you've heard of the Iceman in northern Italy? Yes, yeah. A guy who uh, after, you know, he was probably running from his enemies and bleeding to death, and he froze to death in a little area where he was completely covered by ice for the next several thousand years. You know, preserved enormous amounts of interesting information because his gear – you know, his bow, his arrow, his copper axe, all sorts of gear he had, his clothing is preserved enough you can study it. That's very unusual. But by the way, he looked Sardinian. They all look Sardinian. <laughs> oh, and like one of the funny things about this, there are a couple of different ways to measure uh, genetic closeness, but at least one of them, even, uh, as I said, you know, people in North Africa had largely been settled from the Middle East. If you look at... Uh, Ancient Egyptians, and we, again, we have some DNA from them in a few cases. The group, the living group they look closest to is, again, Sardinians, <laughs> uh, simply because modern Egyptians have mixed more with other different groups, mm -hmm. and that, that hadn't happened quite as much 2,000 years ago. So in, in Roman days, uh, uh, but, but another thing that this means is that, uh, we'll get to it in a minute, but see, most, most of, you know, all of Europe was settled by these people from the Middle East, or almost all of Europe, maybe not, maybe not Finland. Uh, but they, uh, and most of Southern Europe, that's still where most of their ancestors, see, Sardinia, it's almost all of their ancestry is from this group. But in places like Italy or Greece or Spain, most of it is still from these early farmers. Mm -hmm. but, but one of the things that meant was that, you know, uh, Romans, for example, were simply genetically not incredibly different from Egyptians, mm -hmm. and they're that, still yeah. not. They're, I mean, they're more different than they were because there's been a lot of African admixture, or some anyhow, in Af in Egypt over the past couple of you know 1,500 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, some of the re you know, in a sense, you could say the whole Roman Empire 
with the except for a couple places they didn't conquer very much, like well, except for say England, was uh, and Germany was genetically kind of similar. I don't know if that mattered any for running the Roman Empire, but it was true. I mean, and if somebody said this guy's from Egypt, but he doesn't look, you know, he could maybe pass for Italian, which some of them could. Said that's because they weren't really all that different. Okay. Uh, which is interesting. Anyway, but this is, you know, so these farmer people, we know, we know a lot about them, but there's all sorts of things we wish we knew. I mean, we have their artifacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk, we know what sort of houses they built. We know what sort of crops they raised. Uh, we probably have at least a vague idea as to how dense their population was. Again, not super dense compared to more modern things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases like that, that we, you know, we could look at, how did uh, people in the Iceman's day do things? We know something about how they made their clothes. We know about things they used. You know, uh, there's a type of uh, of fungus that's called you use as tinder when you're striking a spark. People still used it in Europe until very recently. That's what he used. We know he had tattoos. You know, we we know a lot about him. Uh, we know what he had in his last meal. Uh, we know, you know, what killed him, etc. But but. One thing we don't know, and people are interested, is how do these people think? And, you know, there's no written records, so we don't really know. You think there's a chance they thought very differently than we do? I wouldn't be surprised if they thought at least some differently. I mean, let's say different enough to be interesting. But, I mean, we know certain things. They have certain skills we know about. Like when they first show up, they don't have metallurgy. They're not using metals. But – but they develop skills in, in, in basically in using copper. And they may have been the first people in the world to use it. It's hard to say. You know, like the, the earliest examples in southeastern Europe are pretty similar in time to the earliest examples we have from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. It could be either of them or it could be independent. But, there, but people actually use copper more in Neolithic Europe apparently because there was more. I mean there's a lot of good copper deposits in the Balkans. Mm-hmm. And so people made a lot of things out of copper. And we found places where people mined copper and so forth. We know they had – there's certain things that don't show up. Like we don't see obvious signs of huge hierarchy. Like we don't see palaces and we don't see huge temples. I mean that, does that strange. mean this? Yeah. Well, I just – we just don't. Uh, uh, now some people – like some people have gone way off the deep end and imputed all kinds of interesting things, that some of which could even be true, but the point is no one can tell. There was a, a, a woman uh, uh, anthropologist who got many things right, by the way, talking about early Europe and the transition to Indo-European languages, Gimbutas, mm-hmm. uh, uh, originally Lithuanian. Uh, but she was said, well, you know, the ancient, uh, uh, you know, the early Neolithic populations of Europe – uh, and by the way, we also knew a little bit about their, what there's even before DNA. We knew something about their skeletons and stuff, which is basically, you know, they're a little shorter. Uh, they're, they're not big people. Uh, I mean, not midgets or anything, but, you know, we're talking a few, three, four inches different from, say, Northern Europe today uh, and the later people who came to Northern Europe. Uh, the uh, But she said, talked about them as being you know, a place where women were honored and not patriarchal, uh, not uh, – well, there's weak evidence for a couple of these things. 
Uh, and then, you know, they were probably peaceful. I said, well, maybe not actually. Uh, like we have evidence they fought a lot with the, uh, uh, during the periods they were still coexisting or pushing into territory with the hunter gatherers. There's good reason to think they fought each other, kind of like pioneers and Indians. Yeah, the hunter gatherers must not have been thrilled with a bunch of newcomers coming in. Yeah. You think? Uh, although at the same time, I could imagine some hunter gatherers said, well, I will ally with these guys because there's somebody else who's a greater threat or there was there trade back and forth. I'm sure there was some, but I also know there were cases in which people uh, were looking at one of these early agricultural settlements and saying, why are all these skulls piled up in this corner that look like hunter gatherer skulls? Or uh, uh, there's an interesting book called uh, war before civilization. A guy named Keeley is pointing out that the idea that everything was peaceful in the cases where we have no information Mm-hmm. is uh, based on nothing, of course. Uh, and by the way, we do have some information, and it all looks pretty bloody. So, for example, there was a time in which these farmers were moving into far western Europe. It was their frontier. Mm-hmm. And they built things that looked like log stockades. Uh, so Defensive Keeley, structures. Uh, you might think so, but when Keeley was doing some archaeology in Belgium on this, everybody's saying, well, no, these these are symbolic of uh, you know exclusion between the you know the wilderness and the territory of control and blah blah blah. They finally found one. You know there was also a ditch around the outside and was full of dead people with arrows in their heads. Uh, I mean they have found other ones like that. And people come up with just comical explanations. People who didn't want to believe these people fought like everyone else on Earth does. Uh, they would say, well you know there was. Some symbolic thing where they took all the bodies and just spread them around the outside of this fort and left them there, or, or in some cases where the fort had fallen, they left them on the inside too. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, they fought. I don't think that's all they did. And over the very long run, they kind of assimilated. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the very long run is two or three thousand years. But yeah, they fought. Uh, and by the way, we also know that for various reasons we don't understand. I've talked about these little villages in Germany mm-hmm. of the farming uh, groups. Well, sometimes we would find a case where somebody, presumably from, I think from what tool <laughs> we have, from another farming group, went over to this particular village and killed every single person in it. Yeah, so village disputes. Something. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, people said, well, here are the only reasons. I said, well, if you look at history, that's at least a subset of all the – everything that ever happened in history is at least possible. How do you know it wasn't a hunter-gatherer group that did it rather than another village? I think at the time this happened, it was kind of late for that. I think right. – I'm not sure they still had signs they were still around. At the There's two or three of these you know, pretty well-matured uh, village villages just getting everybody slaughtered in them in uh, Germany. If, if I remember the timings – by the way, it would not surprise me if in the early days there were some such conflicts with the hunter-gatherers, but there, but these things didn't stop when the hunter-gatherers had pretty much disappeared as a separate group. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it, I mean, you know, we know of three or four examples of this where, and of course, you know, we haven't dug most of these things, yeah. but we know that occasionally they just go and wipe everybody out. Why? I said I don't know. What are the reasons people do that? There are a number of reasons. You could say we wanted what they had. Or maybe they wanted what we had, or maybe you know they cooperated with a third force that wanted what we had, or maybe they had habits that we just thought were really disgusting. Well, isn't I mean, it likely there's that there's a million reasons? What? I mean, once there's no more frontier, then 
you know, the, the population will increase faster than the food supply can. So, well, the, the point is there's never an infinite amount of stuff. Well, you know, if the population was static, human wants can increase even if human needs don't. Yeah. Like it says, well, you know, you could, you know, for all I know, they're saying you obstructed our view of the mountains. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why. Uh, also, because these things can escalate, you can start out with a mild hostility. And then after somebody acts on it, that hostility may grow in the other group. It may compound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is probably a time. Who knows? In, this is probably a time when there weren't plagues that were a major check on population uh, growth, right? There were fewer. I wouldn't say zero. Uh, uh, there are there are some things like we don't. Uh, you know, th- you know that's a subfield. Like if we got enough uh, skeletons and. Then you had, you know, there's certain diseases at least that leave a mark on a skeleton, and that might actually get better because now we're getting to the point where we could actually find DNA from pathogens sometimes. Oh. So that might be another route than just looking for bone damage. Uh, but uh, I think that that I think these things were a smaller problem then, but not zero. There are problems that happen just because people, you know, like if everybody lives in a given place and they poop near each other. There are certain diseases that are more common that are, you know, things like uh, worm infestations and stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of that is almost inevitable anytime you just get more crowded. Now, the other thing is over time, new diseases adapt to these concentrated human populations. Some of them get brought in from distant places with trade mm-hmm. and so forth. And certainly most of that hadn't happened yet. Um, there's diseases you can be fairly sure they didn't have, some of which because we know for sure they didn't show up till a particular year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but – they had some things, uh, and uh, it's also possible that their immune systems were not as ready. So it's, you see, it's a it's a balance. It's not just how many diseases you have. It's to what extent is your immune system up to it. I would imagine they had their problems. I don't know. I doubt if they were severe as the American Indians suddenly exposed to a vast number of you know all the diseases from Eurasia. That was an unusually serious crisis, but. Uh, uh, but you know, it, it would. There were probably less things floating around. But I also bet the average person was less resistant to uh, a variety of things than they are today. So uh, you know, it was. Uh, another question is: you can get to a situation, at least some things suggest, where you spend so much fighting that the that your your setup gets messed up. Uh, if you look at the uh, Mayan city states, they spent all their time fighting. Mm-hmm. And it may have had something to do with some of the declines they had for a while after the uh, uh, before the New Mayan uh, uh, Empire, which was you know like 500 years later, some of these groups uh, became more vigorous again. But constant fighting could have bad consequences, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I do. Did they fight constantly? We don't really know that. I mean, the artifacts we find, it's they're not as dominated by weapons as some later groups, mm-hmm. but you know. They had them. They had to have them, you know, if nothing else, for hunting deer. Mm-hmm. But if you can hunt deer, you can hunt people. Once in a while, they did. Again, we don't know anything about what they were thinking. We, there are there's pieces of art that they have, some of which are actually quite appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, statues. There's one called the Thinker that I, I put on the I I, I put I put a, a picture of that on the blog in, in the post I made about uh, Europe. Uh, it's funny because it looks a whole lot like Brancusi. If you've ever, you know, it's how, yeah, yeah, 
Well, my real question is whether Brad Cousy was familiar with this. <laughs> he, he By the way, it's an interesting it's a cultural interesting appropriation thing. from the first farmer, so I don't see anything wrong with being inspired by something interesting <laughs> at all. Uh, uh, but anyhow, we know something about the skills they had. We don't know we, – we're not aware of any writing system they had. If they did, it's not – by the way, there actually are some things that have a certain set of symbols, which you see occasionally in the Balkans. Nobody knows what they mean or if it was a real – it's kind of unlikely it was a real writing system. They're kind of other intermediate things, which are just more like, uh, you know, you know, things like stop signs or dangerous curves ahead. You know, they mean something, but they're not really part of a complete, uh, you know, you can't represent the whole language with them. Mm -hmm. uh, pictograms, they may have had some Vinca script. Does it mean anything? Nobody knows. Okay. Uh, this is all a long time ago. There are a lot of good, uh, good sites to dig and find it. We have you know, found, you know, we can find skeletons, we can find evidence, but part of the problem is their culture kind of got stepped on by a later culture, and it's hard to know what they thought because not, we don't really know how much or, if any, of their culture survived. So uh, what was the group that stepped on them, and when did that happen? Okay, well, this is, this is another interesting thing, particularly the way it interrelates with, uh, you know, the development of archaeology and archaeological thinking and so forth. You see, uh, most people in Europe today speak an Indo-European language. There are only a couple of exceptions, three. Uh, you, know, you know, there's some Finnish, Finnish and a couple of languages related to Finnish. Estonian, which is real close, and Hungarian, which is, you know, medium close. Uh, and the other one, which is a language isolate, no known living language relatives, is Basque, mm -hmm. up in northern Spain and a little bit in the corner of France. That's it. That's the languages people speak in Europe. Uh, and all the other languages are related. You can see, you can see resemblances, you know, in simple things like, uh, you know, basic words, and sometimes more than basic words. You know, like as we know that of several languages descend from Latin. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is one where we know the details historically. We have French, we have Spanish and Portuguese, we have Romanian, we have Italian, we have Romanche in central Switzerland. Okay, we, got, we, we know all of them are descended from Latin, and we can see, but there, I mean, even if Latin did not exist, you could use this to deduce something that how Latin should have existed, because you look for the common features and things mm -hmm. of that sort. Okay, well, it turns out, but at an earlier stage, there was an, a language which was the common ancestor of many languages, including Latin, including Greek, including the Germanic languages, including the Slavic languages, obviously all the things that descend from Latin, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and some languages uh, in eastern uh, areas such as Iranian and uh, most of the languages of India. Uh, and this became when people, st a lot of people who did some traveling started noticing these resemblance. I mean, you know, some of it would just be you know basic words like father, potter. Uh, Vater, Pitar in Sanskrit. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of shared basic things. You know, the numbers, you know, there are, you see, you can identify the, you know, commonalities in, uh, you know, numbers from one through ten. You can identify words for a lot of basic things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, and this has turned into a whole discipline of, it, of its own. Uh, and one that's been very productive. Uh, you know, basically historical linguistics. 
which probably the most successful project they've done is trying to understand the origin of the Indo-European languages. Uh, you know, I like uh, in that uh, in that post I put I put up a bunch of uh, uh, examples of the of the numerals and different things. It's just one example. I also threw one in one Indo-European language that didn't even exist just to uh, see if people were reading carefully. <laughs> did anyone pick up on it? Yes, they did, and they were actually rather pleased. It was uh, it was a, a science fiction story in which you know alternate universe in which Venus and Mars are habitable and even have humans or possible humans on them. And so we have some explorers who are talking with these possible humans on Venus, mm -hmm. and then they realize that that they that you know their words for their people and some basic words and uh, and words for the, the for the numerals all sound European, <laughs> Indo-European, and and they are. So I th I threw in this uh, uh, imagined Indo-European language just to see if anybody <laughs> and. There's somebody said it's thrilled. I had never. I've been looking for a new Indo-European language for some time because I thought I knew them all. Uh, but um, anyway, so you know, this is probably the you know the bigger part of our story is the story of of Indo-European languages and of Indo-Europeans. Okay. Uh, which is um, the uh, as I said, all these people were speaking. Probably related languages. Now, not close anymore because these guys took several thousand years to spread across Europe. Mm -hmm. That's time for languages to differ. But they probably still – probably the – I mean it is also possible in a few places that the language of the previous hunter-gatherers persisted in some group. But I'll bet that in most areas the people were speaking languages in this, in this big family of languages descended out of the people who moved out of Turkey. Descended from whatever language they spoke when they moved to Greece. Okay, and this is not so, the this is not an Indo-European. No, this language. is a pre-group. Okay. Uh, and uh, the thing is, there might be one language which is a survivor. Basque might be a survivor. Okay, from the first farmers or from the hunter-gatherers? Well, actually, both are possible, but I bet on the farmers. Hmm. Usually, when you have conflicts between, usually not always, when you have some sort of conflict between the farmers and the hunter-gatherers. Bet on the farmers winning, yeah. but also dominating culturally and dominating. Uh, it's typical, you know, like when um, you know there are. There's only really one country in Latin America where people speak something other than Spanish or Portuguese to any great, ex really significant extent. All right, two or three, but it but Spanish is dominant. Like the place where Spanish is least dominant is Paraguay, mm -hmm. where people speak the local Guarani. Language, quite a few people speak that. Uh, I mean, maybe more than half the population speaks it, but you know, almost everywhere else, the imported language is the dominant one. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I can find you people who speak Mayan, but there's a lot more people who speak Spanish, even in Mexico, probably mm -hmm. even in Guatemala. So, anyhow, my guess is if it is, and the, the other thing is, there may have been other languages that survived up to the dawn of history that. That they were certainly ones that weren't Indo-European, and some of them may also have been in this my projected uh, Anatolian family. Okay. Uh, you know, early farmer family. First farmers. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we had, uh, you know, there was Etruscan. Mm -hmm. It. I think people are reasonably sure it's not Indo-European, but that's about all we know. But and the thing is, that's another one of these interesting things that almost works, like. Uh, like we know that a particular emperor wrote a dictionary of Etruscan, but we don't have any copies of it. 
But if you, we have some inscriptions. We even have at least one book, I think, written in Etruscan, but nobody can read it. I mean, they can read a few words, but, you know, obvious things like somebody's name or something. Mm-hmm. But we, we can't. But the thing is, it's on this list. Like, if somebody found a copy of, uh, I think it was Claudius that did this. I may be wrong. Anyhow, suppose we found a copy of that book. Everything would change. We'd know an enormous amount about Etruscan. We could probably read all the or most of the inscriptions. And then all these questions about is what is what, if anything, is it related to or where did it come from? We'd have a real good – but, you know, it all depends on luck. We'd, and similarly, there were languages which we think were related to Basque that used to be more widely spread in Spain. This is some of us judging for place names and things. Mm-hmm. I, there is a – a guy who's considered generally crazy, although I don't think he's quite as crazy as people thought, a guy named Theo Veneman, who thought that a lot of Western Europe was occupied by people once upon a time speaking languages related to Basque. He, you know, again, looking at very old place names and things, river names and stuff, he could be right. It is for sure true that, say, 6,000 years ago, everybody in Western Europe was speaking a set of languages that probably weren't Indo-European. They were probably related languages, and they Basque might be one of their descendants. Veneman might be right, mm-hmm. at least, or or part of what he's saying might be right. Okay. I mean, there's several classes of crazy people that have been validated by some of this recent work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe they never were crazy. Maybe everybody else well, was crazy. There's the obvious joke about uh, about you and the Neanderthals <laughs> interbreeding with humans. You know, that wasn't – we weren't the only person who thought that. I mean, it was – at the time we were talking about it, uh, well, I was sure it was likely because I had looked at, again, how separated groups had to be before breeding became difficult. Mm-hmm. And that – I said, you know, you're running each other. If nothing else, there should be some rape. Yeah. And also I said at least some of it should show up as useful because they were there for – they were in places like Europe for hundreds of thousands of years, so likely they had some useful adaptations. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that was all pretty logical. It didn't mean it was 100% certain. I'd say only 90% plus. Most people in human genetics thought it unlikely. They had a couple of weak reasons and one stronger but not good reason. One reason is like we had looked and it was clear that nobody had any Neanderthal Y chromosomes. Mm-hmm. But all that would necessarily mean is their Y chromosome didn't fit very well. Similarly, they didn't have any Neanderthal mitochondria. But again, mm-hmm. same argument. It's just saying it's that's like saying one particular gene from the Neanderthals didn't work. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the other reason, which was the strong one that it really influenced people, was they thought it because everybody else thought it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. There were, I mean, those are all the arguments there were. You know, the, 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 or plus occasionally nobody would have done such a thing, which I thought was genuinely hilarious. Yeah, <sighs> but let's let's go back. So the Indo the people who spoke the Indo European, they ended up conquering the. The first farmers, they ended up – That's what it looks like. Like first, what we know is we know there was a culture that lived on the plains of Russia. Okay. Uh, and this where, happened – Where are after, the – like right now, where are the plains? Or is that like what part of southern Russia? Russia southern Russia. Southern Russia. Uh, okay. Places like just – areas just north of the Caucasus, uh, areas east of there to some extent. The Ukraine is part of this region. Uh, you know, areas that were historically grasslands. All right. And uh, we know that there was a culture that probably started out around, uh, you know, the southern edge of this region that, you know, some new techniques happened. People put the pieces together. It was now easy 
you could make a good living out of these planes. Previously, it was kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was the wheel, so you could go around in wagons. See, the, the fundamental problem is most of this area, though, it rains enough for plenty of grass. It's, it's, like a, it's a lot like the American Great Plains. It's hard to farm there, but grass grows. If you were raising cattle or something and could find a way to herd them efficiently, also sheep, you could make a good living there. Okay. You know, we're talking cowboys. So okay. they can't they can't earn a living farming, but they can raising animals. Listen, in most of the area, at least with the methods they had, of farming was probably limited to near some of the rivers, hmm. and some of the people and their farming wasn't all that widespread in this region. So yeah, but but cattle do well there, mm-hmm. and but to do cattle you needed basically two things. One of them was you need a wagon, and the invention of the wheel around 4000 BC, which may have even been in this region. Nobody knows. Wheels are found early in a number of regions, but you see, they spread rapidly. Whoever invented the wheel, people said, this is, you know, when people saw the wheel, their reaction was, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> uh, and so wheels spread rapidly. You know, we, we know wheels early in the Middle East. Uh, I don't know where it was invented. Why, do you, even, a, why do you need a wagon to, to you need to, You need to be moving around. You need to... You're going from region to region. The cattle are going where the grass is, which very, you know, they use it up in a given area. They got to move somewhere else. Uh, particularly, you have a lot of cattle, which you would like to have. You have, uh, uh, you need to go be able to visit water sources. Uh, now, there was one point in which uh, uh, David Reich was saying, well, with these wagons, by the way, the wa- original wagons are probably first uh, pulled by oxen. Mm-hmm. Later, people's. Uh, the next ingredient, which really helps you herd the animals and makes this whole thing really work, is probably domesticating the horse. Okay, but but he uh, David Reich in, the book, in his book was saying, well, and also you could get further away from water sources. You could carry water in your wagon, you know, for your cattle. And the answer is, uh, actually, you can't. They drink too much. You know, like if like a given, you know, like an average number of gallons per day for a cow is like twelve. Yeah, they probably you, you didn't don't, have watertight storage containers, or at least. Well, you would need pretty good ones, and they'd have to be light and not fall apart. Like they probably had water skins. There's no sign these guys had, you know, big pottery jars. I don't know how they could have carried a lot of water. The other thing is, it's so heavy. Like what it means is, or, or I'm thinking when I read about uh, guys doing cattle drives, mm-hmm. or people on the Oregon Trail, or Mongols, or anybody. You know who are uh, pastoralists who raise cattle. I never have I heard about them carrying all the water in the back of the of the wagon because they don't. What they do is they know where the water sources are. They are willing to get a little bit past them. I mean, like you, your cows might be able to go for an extra day without it, but you know you go to a place you know there's going to be water, and even in most of these places there's enough to have some of this kind of uh, cattle raising and sheep raising. Mm-hmm. I mean, people manage. But those water sources, you know, they can be limited. They can be valuable, and people can fight over them. But they don't just carry it all in a big. Or like if, like you know, today people will get they'll they'll actually have a big container and they'll put the water out, uh, even if there's no water nearby, mm-hmm. uh, in a cattle ranch. But they carry something that's pulled about the size of a semi to bring enough water for to you know to last for a reasonable amount of time. Anyhow, uh, all this reveals is that David Reich did not grow up on a cattle ranch. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, 
Uh, so this is you mentioned it before. So David Reich is a professor at Harvard, and he's one of the lead, he's probably the leading person in looking at um, ancient DNA. Yes, and another person who I probably should have mentioned uh, specifically is his who is possibly his right arm or his right brain is a guy named Nick Patterson. Okay. See, a lot of this work has depended on developing certain methods of analyzing DNA, particularly methods that are not too sensitive to the fact that ancient DNA is sometimes kind of crappy. There may, you know, there are, you know, there are, you know, chemical changes happen in ancient DNA. You could think of it as noise, errors, confusion. You need to find uh, sophisticated methods that deal with large amounts of data, give you, tell you what you want to know, that also are insensitive to the noise. Like, for example, the Neanderthal samples we get weren't exactly as good as one you'd get in the clinic. Mm -hmm. It's been a little while. Yeah. Uh, so that was a guy named Nick Patterson. And Nick Patterson, like when you get down to the real data processing details, and Nick Patterson, is, I'm told, uh, knows everything. Now, that probably can't be true forever as they hire more people and do more work in the area. But he's, you know, the guy in terms of, uh, you know, doing a lot of the coming up with the analysis tools. Okay. Uh, Reich, I think, is generally familiar with these things and is a part of this story, but he's the administrator, and that must take some of his time. Where I think that uh, that Patterson is really careful never to get into anything like that. Uh, Patterson is an interesting guy. Uh, he's uh, he's smart. He used to be. He's a by education. He's a mathematician. At one point he was as he was when he's young he was Irish youth he's from England but he would played an Irish chess tournament and won mm -hmm. uh, you know be, which means he's good doesn't mean he's you know world championship level but he was damn good he was a codebreaker he used to work at GCHQ which is the British version of the NSA oh. later later he worked at a place called IDA Institute for Defense Analysis. They also do some code breaking among other things. I, I, I once I interviewed with them once upon a time. The uh, uh, later he worked for Renaissance, you know, which is considered the uh, the primo hedge fund of all of them. Mm -hmm. And then he got into this. And he's been very insightful. He came up now some of these methods already existed, but nobody had used them much. Or they didn't realize all their advantages. Other things he invented. But, you know, methods of looking for things like, you know, that can determine shared ancestry between groups and things, he did a lot of developments in that. He's been real important in all this work. Now, how much trust can we have in this? I mean, there's, you know, a lot of replication problems in various disciplines. Well, uh, we I mean, other people have uh, generally, not perfect, but generally, you know, the digital data is available to other people. And, you know, that, now other people... You know, they often use standard programs to analyze them, but there are people who have also written their own variants to do the same thing. I don't know of any real problems in in terms of, you know, I don't think people are too unsure about the analysis for most of this stuff. Okay. Uh, I mean, um, oh, and, you know, and, you know, like, I, I will tell a story uh, from, uh, like, one of the other things these finds got, not part of this current uh, talk much, but when they found the cousins of the Neanderthals, the Denisovans yeah. in Eastern Asia, uh, and they also they went from a tiny sample, a tiny sample with great DNA preservation. It's only part of a fingertip, but it's got great DNA. So we know enormous amounts of their genes, and all we know is they've got fingertips. And I think teeth. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, that they didn't even have legs. Uh, I've never. But uh, 
but and, and we also found out there were populations such as the Australian Aborigines and people in New Guinea who have some ancestry from this different group. Mm-hmm. But and uh, let me tell you a, a story which was fun. They came out with the original Neanderthal paper in 2010. Uh, John Hawks and I had, had had written some things about how we thought Neanderthal mixture was almost inevitable and there, some of it would turn out to be useful and you'd have spread in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we heard it. We heard about this a little before the paper because there was a American physical anthropology conference in Albuquerque, virtually the only type of conference I ever bothered to go to, one that I can fall out of bed and be there. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and there were people there who were had been reviewing the Neanderthal paper. They knew what was coming, you know, in about a week. We heard about it, and we tried not to be insufferable. <laughs> I, I hope we succeeded. But we it was it was fun. But later that summer, I was reading that paper in great detail. I wanted to understand how, what the tools they'd used and stuff. And I found something interesting. One of the consequences you like of this finding is. You know, as I said, it happened early, the Neanderthal mixture. So mm-hmm. essentially everybody outside of Africa has it and approximately the same amount, not a whole lot of difference. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you take a group in Africa, particularly one that split off very early, the genetic distance between them and everybody outside of Africa is essentially the same. Okay. They don't have anything, you know, there have been no encounters since mm-hmm. they split. And so – you know, like, here's a group that split, and then it has all these descendants. They're all equally different from Bushmen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and that's almost true. Like, the French are just as, uh, and by the way, and since the split was so early, you know, even other Africans are closer to people in Eurasia than, than the Bushmen are. I mean, in fact, they're closer than they are to the Bushmen. You know, uh, your typical guy in Nigeria is closer to somebody in France than he is to a Bushman. Bushmen split off a long time ago. Okay, anyhow, but I was looking at these numbers, and they had these for a few – again, these were not as abundant as today. People didn't do – sequencing a genome was a major piece of work rather than something you do over the afternoon. Mm-hmm. But they had some. And they, I said, so this French guy is just as far from the, from the Bushman as this Chinese guy. I said, well, that's what it should be. And we had some other examples. I said, but here's something funny. Deep in these tables on the online supplement – the people in New Guinea are farther away, and they're the only ones that are farther away. So how did that happen? How could that have happened? Not only that, the caption is wrong. So unless you look at the number and ignore the caption, you won't even know that they're farther away, <laughs> which I think was just a coincidence, by the way. I said there's only one way to get farther genetically away from the, you know, from the human, uh, from an early human group. You have to mix with some other people who split off even earlier. In other words, you had to split split with some archaic group like Neanderthals, but not Neanderthals because mm-hmm. these guys don't show a special level of Neanderthal mixture. I said these guys mixed with someone else, and this is the, at the time the only someone else we had as a candidate was the Denisovan sample. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a little note to uh, Nick Patterson, saying, "So looks like." People in New Guinea must have uh, mixed with Denisovans. And he sent me a very polite note saying, we have a paper coming out in a couple of months. Much will be explained. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's a certain value in looking at the details of these things because, you know, sometimes the thing they're about to tell you in the next paper is already there. 
yeah. if you look in great detail. But at any rate, back to the Indo-Europeans. Yeah, so, All right, so, we know that uh, this culture expanded. First, we you know first we knew it archaeologically. Mm-hmm. Okay, people knew that a long time ago, and it spread over, it spread rapidly because once they had a, a method that worked on these grasslands where not many people had been living. And again, I think the horse is a very important part, along with you know wheels and wagons. Mm-hmm. They spread rapidly over. You see, the horse is important because it lets you ride and keep up and manage your cattle. Now, when did they start to spread? This is probably about. It's around the time I said that almost all of Europe has been covered with uh, Middle Eastern farmers. Probably, perhaps around 4,000 BC, perhaps 6,000 years ago, okay. this culture is forming in, in these grasslands of southern Russia. Okay. Is there a name it, for this group? That they common? call it. People usually call it the Yamnaya culture. Okay. There's also sub. You know, they there's a group that uh, may, may have been part of their ancestry just north of the Caucasus Mountains called the Maikop culture. You know, there's a but the main group is called the Yamnaya culture, and we know they spread a little, oh, spread very far. Okay. And uh, and then they start showing up in Europe. Okay. Now, when, the, they, when do they start to show up in Europe? Well, I think there's some signs of an earlier phase, but I'll talk about the big phase that we know the best. Mm-hmm. About 3000 BC, about 5000 years ago. Okay. Over a fairly short period, there had been people who were doing, you know, who were Sardinian-like genetically, had this Middle Eastern package of farming, who were farming in places like, let's say, Germany and Poland. Mm-hmm. And then, maybe 100 or 200 years later, they're not. They're gone. Or rather, all the all their works are gone. There are no more buildings. There are no more villages. What they the only thing you can find are graves with guys. Uh, you know, and by the way, the graves are somewhat different than the previous ones, and they're buried with what we with what we you know a stone axe, which we uh, we used to call this the battle axe culture. Mm-hmm. And then it spreads. It spreads further east. It spreads up to at least the middle of Western Germany. Mm-hmm. It's in Scandinavia and the Baltics. And other groups that are probably related end up starting to spread in various parts of more in other parts of Europe, uh, in Western Europe. Uh, now, we now have some skeletons from those times. So we can say, you know, the guys who are now in Germany and Poland, the battle axe culture, mm-hmm. they're genetically not the same as the previous farmers. They have some ancestry from those farmers, maybe 25%. And the rest looks like Yamnaya. Okay. The Yamnaya have moved in and mostly displaced the previous guys. Were, were the Yamnaya farming when they reached Europe? Somewhere between slim and none. Okay. I mean, some of this, they have a method of trying to figure out what people are up to that in principle can go beyond just the archaeology. They're mm-hmm. studying the linguistics to see, are there early shared words for doing X? That means we did X. You know, like, is there a word for copper at the root of this branch of the Indo-European language? The answer is yes. They knew about copper. Are there, is there a word for wheels? Yes, there is. I mean, in some of those, the root is something like kuklos, which shows up in words like cycle today. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they, they have – they attempt to figure out what sort of things they were up to from from fossils in the language. Now, it's not an easy thing to do, and I don't think it always works, but I think it's a reasonable thing. And – there are things that make it sound like they farmed, but the archaeology does not show much of it. Okay. And the other thing is the linguistics doesn't show a lot of it. And the third thing 
is it's beginning to look as if a lot of the words in the European language for various crops and things are actually not Indo-European at all. It looks as if they were picked up from the previous farming populations. So the word for peas is apparently its root is a non-Indo-European word that must have been used by these previous people, mm-hmm. uh, the previous farming. The word for linen, uh, you know, as, as examples. So uh, I don't think that – I think they were primarily stock raisers. I think they raised cattle and sheep and goats. Mm-hmm. And that's the main thing they did. For a, I think they farmed a little but not very much. And so we see changes. So – and those changes spread over Europe, genetic changes. So 6,000 years ago, the people in Ireland looked like kind of Sardinians mm-hmm. genetically. 5,000 years ago, they looked like the modern Irish. So the Omnia conquered. They must have had a lower population density, if you, right? If you don't farm, you can't get as many calories. They probably did. They probably did, although they might have farmed more acres because, as I said, the, the previous farmers seemed to have been kind of specialized. And they only, only Their farming methods only seemed to work or were only used in sort of a subset of set of soils. Okay. Oh, you, uh, you know, so you but uh, like you know, farming – there's also indications in some of these places that farming stopped even before the Indo-Europeans took over the place. And I don't think we know exactly why. I offer a suggestion like in Ireland. People – like you look at sediments in a pond mm-hmm. and, and, and for a while you're seeing you know, the sort of pollen you get from farming, from, from you know, early European farming. Mm-hmm. Then it stops for a few hundred years and then after a while everybody's into you – know, the, these new groups which are, have a fair amount of ancestry from the Yamnaya are now the population. So in uh, between – Something happened. What I get, and the same thing happens in England. It looks like farming almost completely stopped in England for some time before the, the, the new people move in. By the way, we know, like in England, we know the extent of replacement. You know, like previously you had people who were sort of like Sardinians farming there. Then mm-hmm. you go through a period of something where there's still some people there, but not very much farming. Then you have a new population in there. At first, they're not farming either, but they are raising cattle. The new population is very similar to English today, mm-hmm. and it has some Yamnaya ancestry, maybe, I don't know, 40% or something. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and it has some, by the way, some hunter-gatherer ancestry, but it's not from the same hunter-gatherers who were there before. You know, In other words, a mix happened somewhere roughly in, in Germany, and then they went and conquered England and wiped almost everybody out. Mm-hmm. But what happened to the farming in between? There's a few places where people kept doing it, and they're odd places like the Orkney Islands. People were still farming in the Orkney, even that they'd stopped in England. Like I've heard, oh, it was climate change. I said, yeah, you invoke that a lot, but there's no evidence for any real bad climate change in this period. So what it was either they were killed by some people or by I think it was something, the equivalent of piracy. Like Uh, imagine a period. The Vikings. The the equivalent of what the Vikings did. Yes. I mean, imagine you have a bunch of guys and they're coming and they're attacking and there's not much, nobody's stopping them. Mm-hmm. It's possible to get to the point where it's almost impossible to farm because you, you're not safe anywhere. Yeah. Uh, there have been cases like that in more recent history where certain kinds of guys who were, well, I mean, like here's a simple example. There were areas of northern Mexico where people were farming and then the Comanches got horses and then, you know, we'll call it the farming frontier, you know, the farthest place. North that people are regularly farming, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It went backward for a hundred years. Why? Because the, the, the Comanche would come and they would raid. Nobody knew how to stop them. Yeah. And it wasn't because they were overwhelmingly numerous. It was more because they were mobile, aggressive, and also because they had the advantage of not having any homes. You know, they just lived out permanently on the prairie. Oh, so it was hard to retaliate. Yeah, I mean, other kinds of Indians, even if they were difficult, like the Apaches farm, they had homes. You, you could find them and retaliate against them. The Comanche were just out there. They were hard to find. They were anyhow. So you know, in a case like that where you have raiders that you can't stop, it's perfectly possible that you know less and less land gets farmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were times in the Middle Ages, in the early, you know, the darkest of the Dark Ages, where you had all kinds of raiders and the population was dropping, and that meant there were places that people had farmed that they weren't farming. At that. So then, sort of from the point of the view of the raiders, it was like they were overfishing the population, where they raided so much that not enough. Well, another way of saying is eventually they may have beaten down the locals so much that, shit, we might as well invade. It's not even – we're not getting that much anymore from them, and there aren't many left. Why don't we just take it? Yeah. Again, that's a guess. We don't know. But I can tell you things like that have happened repeatedly where people on horseback or sea raiders have made life essentially impossible. I mean now sometimes people solve the problem by developing their own state. Mm-hmm. You know, like Alfred the Great in England, he got the – the Anglo-Saxons better organized to the point where they could beat the Vikings. But lots of times, you know, there were places just got, I mean, like 800, 900 AD, Western Europe was in, had trouble coming from all directions. There was some area in eastern France that in one generation they got raided by the Vikings who came up the rivers, the, the uh, Magyars who were riding horses from the Hungarian plain, and the Moslems who were raiding from the southern French coast. And, uh, you know, Western Europe was kind of uh, – life wasn't easy uh, during this period. Uh, uh, I mean, like you lived on the coast, you had to worry about being killed, kidnapped, all your stuff being stolen. Or if you're near a major river or if you're someplace where Hungarians could ride. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, was, there were people who moved up in basically kind of crummy places in the hills largely as just protection. I mean, particularly if you were near the coast somewhere, you had to worry about this a lot. At any rate, I don't know. And of course, one thing people say is, well, what's the archaeological evidence of this? I said, I don't think there is any. But, you know, there might not be much if you just have a few raiders occasionally visited and burning something down. Uh, I mean, the, the clearest archaeological evidence is you burn down the city, then you build it re- anew your way, you know, completely different architecture or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, like even burning down a city, cities burn down by themselves sometimes. You know, they didn't have fire departments. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, fire was a real threat. To, I mean, unless you had a city where things were built out of, say, uh, stone or something. But you know, it's always always a threat. Well, uh, the absence of fire. If we, if the archaeological evidence really shows there was no farming for a while. That's something. There was awful certainly not very much. And there's some similar indications in parts of Western Europe, like the population crashed. And I think before the, the full settlement of the new guys, and I, I'm guessing it involved raiding, since it, since guys on horseback versus other people who are sedentary, it's a common pattern. Now, were but, these the same kind of horses that we have? Were they as big or? They're probably a bit smaller, but you know, even a small horse is not impossible to ride. 
And uh, what kind do we know what kind of weapons were they? Were they shooting arrows? Were they They probably had answers? arrows. Arrows arrows were known in this whole time. You know, like the original hunter gatherers knew how to make arrows. Uh now swords probably not quite because you know, if, at least in the first years we're talking about, like which is about 5,000 years ago, about 3,000 BC, mm-hmm. uh, which is when this Yamna expansion seems to have really got going. By the way, there may have been a bit more earlier into places like Greece, mm-hmm. but the, you know, the one in which, by the way, it, like we look at ancient times in Greece, like one way you can start to tell what's going on is like you have Mycenaean civilization, the you know, which is like on the order of 15, 1600 BC. We know they spoke Greek. We can read some of their records, mm-hmm. linear B. Okay, and we, recently we have looked at some ancient DNA from these times. We, on the mainland, they had about 15% Yamnaya-type ancestry. So the Yamnaya had had an effect, but they hadn't – but whatever happened there is probably closer to conquer, you know, conquering people rather than mostly wiping them out and replacing them. You know, there's degrees of these things. Uh, so 15% sounds like a bunch of guys who come in and conquer the place and then intermarry. Uh, by the way, on uh, – they also got some DNA from ancient uh, – uh, from the uh, civilization on Crete, mm-hmm. the Minoans. Mm-hmm. They did not have this uh, steppe ancestry. No. So, by the way, another thing which might – you know, if we ever get lucky and get the right clue, you know, Minoan – you know, we had this different – not an alphabet, a, a different symbol set that was used to write early Greek. But the Minoans probably didn't speak Greek. They didn't have the, you know, Greek is an Indo-European language. You probably all of these things seem to have come off the step, or at least almost all of them. Mm-hmm. And the Minoans probably did not speak an Indo-European language, since also they had no step ancestry at the same time. Mm-hmm. But they also wrote. We have things written in Linear A. We just can't read it. Again, almost. Mm-hmm. And again, suppose we found something where that we had, you know, the equivalent of Rosetta Stone. All of a sudden, we might know something about, you know. Like I said, we, we know art. We know some of the things they built, and we know some of the things that these early farmers didn't build. You know, like, like they don't seem to have castles, and uh, they don't seem to have huge temples. But we don't know how they thought. We have weak indications. I would say Gim Butas was sure she knew how they thought, but she was dreaming. <laughs> well, do but, we – did the Yamnami, did they build things? Did they? No, for a long time they didn't build anything at all, so that's actually quite characteristic. Uh, later they eventually came to, but originally, as I said, like in Germany, you can't find, you know, for a few hundred years after they show up, you don't find anything at all. You find graves. You so find they're... almost no buildings, no villages. I think they were just raising cattle. Maybe a few guys once, like, you know, if they'd farmed at all, I figure it was barley. Because they probably discovered beer by this time. And my picture of these guys, besides running around, conquering people and bashing their heads in, also involves heavy drinking. <laughs> but I don't actually know that. Uh, although, for all I know, you know, we'll dig somebody up and we'll be able to tell somehow. I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, interesting things are possible. Well, there, uh, I bet we could tell with, um, with evolutionary adaptation, right? Because if you, you're constantly getting drunk. Well, well, that's that actually an argument kind of against it because uh, uh, we now know uh, the people who've been farming for various means of times, most, almost anything you farm has carbohydrates in it and could be made into an alcoholic drink. You know, rice wine, barley for beer. You know, you can make things out of corn. Everybody's done it. Okay. Uh, but 
but alcohol, you know, drinking alcoholic beverages is something that can cause trouble. Yes. Although it actually has some pluses as well, because for example, you if you drink something like uh, wine, you know, like for what what are the practical reasons the Roman legions would prefer to drink wine? It said because you won't get dysentery if you drink wine. Mm-hmm. You won't pick a you know there's enough alcohol in it you kill the germs. Yeah. Doesn't take a lot, but 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 that's a useful thing. On the other hand, what about becoming a drunk? That's a risk. So. In essentially every population that's been farming a long time, and to some extent this depends on how long they've been farming, there have been adaptations that make you less likely to be an alcoholic. Not zero likely, but less likely. Mm-hmm. So if you have a population that's never farmed, just farmed for like a short time, like a thousand years, they have real – every one of them has real problems with alcoholism. So Eskimos have problems with alcoholism. Navajo, they farm, but not for very long. They have trouble. Uh, Australian Aborigines have trouble. And interestingly enough, people with lots of Indo-European descent have more trouble than people with, with, with smaller zero amounts. Oh, so the first farmers had some adaptation. They've been farming longer. Yeah. I mean, they've been farming as long as anybody on Earth. So do Sardinians have a very low rate of alcoholism? Well, the general way to look at it, I think, I, I don't know about Sardinians. I mean, they, they're so, so broke, they might not even be able to afford it. But the... <laughs> Uh, is most Southern Europe is mostly descended from those farmers. There is some Indo-European Yamnaya ancestry, yeah. uh, particularly in the Y chromosomes, which makes you again wonder. But but most like the average Italian, like the average Greek, is probably seventy-five percent Southern uh, farmer. I mean, Southern end of the old farmers mm-hmm. by ancestry. Italians varies according to how far north in Italy you are. But, you know, something in that ballpark, southern France, kind of similar, Spain, kind of similar. They all have, other than Sardinians, they all have at least some uh, of, of the steppe ancestry, uh, but not none of them is it as much as half. Uh, whereas in places like, probably the highest place I know is probably someplace like Norway, which yeah. probably gives you a hint as what, it, you know, these Yamnaya women looked like 5,000 years ago. Uh, that might, that, by the way, that's an alternate scenario for how they conquered, but I, I don't actually believe it. But, uh, you know, it was, you know, like the Swedish bikini team invaded or something. Uh, I don't think that's what happened. Uh, but Northern Europeans. And one of the interesting things, you look genetically, you know, look at these FST numbers, a measure, a simple measure of how different people are. You go all the way from Russia or at least Poland all the way to, to say Scotland or Ireland, people aren't all very genetically different. This has actually always been a clue sitting around. Why are they so similar across the whole what this whole region? Mm-hmm. I said because they have a recent common origin. Yeah, yeah not. without not exactly the same because it's somewhat depend how much you mixed with the previous inhabitants, but it's not a whole lot. But they, a lot of places they didn't mix much, like in England. You know, he used to have these people who were kind of Sardinian-like with some hunter-gatherer mixture. They're mm-hmm. the guys who built Stonehenge. Okay, then they were gone. And the, today, the amount of ancestry that the British have from that group is like maximum 7%. Mm-hmm. The, the other guys replaced them, and they replaced them in Ireland. Now, some of the areas, like I think it was – it might be as low as only a 70% replacement in Germany and Poland. But you see the pattern here. We're talking about mm-hmm. a lot of replacement. Yeah, but and the Yamnami did they didn't have as much success in southern Europe? I think it I would guess it depends on what they wanted to do. 
uh, uh, you know, like sometimes whether you conquer and wipe everybody out, whether you conquer and then rule people, some of it is a choice. I mean, like when the Mongols first started expanding, the first major war they had was with this a, a kingdom called the Qin Empire in North China. It mm -hmm. was, you know, the people were mostly Chinese, but the ruling class was some group of uh, people who had been more nomads, mm -hmm. but who had been become pretty Chinese cultured, pretty acclimatized and so forth. Uh, whereas in southern China, Sung China, that was a native dynasty. Okay. Well, the first, you know, the, the way the, the Mongols had trouble figuring out how to conquer walled cities, although they could win cavalry fights. Mm -hmm. But they came up with a strategy. They said, if we burn down every and kill every single peasant, nobody will have anything to eat <laughs> in those. And so I've seen estimates like in McNeil's Plagues and Peoples, the Mongols may have killed more than 90% of all the people in the Qin Empire. Were the Yamnami warriors, were they like the Mongols? Is that a reasonable Not, comparison? I guarantee you they weren't nearly as well organized. I mean, the Mongols were exceedingly well organized. But what I was trying to point out is when the when the Mongols conquered the Sung Empire, the southern part, they did not do this. They There was a famous prisoner who had been sort of a bureaucrat who – who praised the wonders of taxation as opposed to massacre. Mm -hmm. And the Mongols were convinced. And they didn't wipe out South China. They taxed it. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened with the Europeans in uh, you know the with, with the with the various conquests and so forth? I mean, like nobody knows the details. We know that in northern Europe it was close it was a high level of replacement, mm -hmm. ranging from seventy percent up, probably. I mean, these numbers may change slightly, but it's something like that for Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. The Amnaya mostly replaced. Um, in Southern Europe, they didn't mostly. They showed up and it's like, you know, they conquered people. You know, maybe, uh, I mean, farming may have been more effective in Southern Europe. I mean, these crops were developed in the Middle East. There was, you know, they may not have worked as well in Northern Europe. I mean, we know, like in later years, People didn't so much grow wheat in places like Germany. They grew other crops that were better adapted to uh, being farther north. Like uh, east of the Rhine, like east of the Rhine into Poland and Russia, people mostly grew rye. A uh, mm -hmm. place like Scotland, they grew oats. Mm -hmm. Both of those are pretty hardy compared to – it can take cooler weather. Uh, uh, it may have been that agriculture was more productive. You know, Maybe you could get more by farming in, in southern Europe – as compared to raising cattle, where, you know, it's closer in, to being the same. Like, suppose your crops only grow, you only figure out a way to grow them in a few crops and they don't grow super well. Switching to raising cattle might pe might be competitive. But it's more likely to be competitive in Northern Europe than Southern Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, but nobody knows. I mean, maybe, it's hard. Like, we, you can get hints. Like, so like let's suppose that we see more Indo-European things in the Y chromosomes in Southern Europe, which we do in at least some places, like mm -hmm. Italy. Well, maybe you had Indo-Europeans who they conquered an area and they picked up a local girl as a wife, and then in the next generation, his son did the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, his son is now only half Indo-European, assuming the father was 100%, but he's still got exactly the same Y chromosome. Right. So the Y chromosome, you know, if you had a pattern like this, you know, this is sort of like what was happening when I talked about Fiji. You know, the Y chromosomes went further because, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's the sons and their sons. You go through three generations, and after a while, most people are descended in their Y chromosomes from the conquerors. Mm -hmm. But if the conquerors brought no women, you might still mm -hmm. be mainly descended 
on all the other genes from the people who inhabited it before. So, uh, but like one of the interesting things in all this is, uh, you know, people in Northern Europe look different from people in Southern Europe, somewhat. They mm -hmm. also are taller. And there's actually good evidence that, uh, and this is partly due to the Amnaya being taller in the first place, but possibly a further selection later. Anyhow, genetically, given similar diets, people from, say, Sweden are somewhat taller than, say, people from Sardinia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and Reich talks about this and he also mentions there are certain people who said well there's a mysterious principle that you couldn't have human groups evolve to be that different in a few thousand years and the point is there is no such principle it's made up and Reich says and I, we know that because we can show the genetics how, they're, how, the people, how the Swedes are somewhat taller than the Sicilians or the mm -hmm. Sardinians and I remember but one thing which I sort of quarrel a little bit with Reich is he has this tendency to say well we don't really know it Till we've got the details of the genetics. I said, but <laughs> since there were already Swedes and Sardinians both living in Chicago, both with plenty to eat, you know, back in 1930, and people would notice, hey, the Swedes are taller. That's because the Swedes are taller. Here's a related question. You know what a Percheron is? I uh, know. Uh, you know, you know, the sort of big uh, horses that they sometimes use to pull a plow in Belgium, and they okay. and they. They they pull the Anheuser Busch uh, wagon. Oh yeah, yeah. Ads. I okay. the commercial. All right. Oh, you know Clydesdales. They're another similar, very big yeah, horse. Yeah. Uh, by the way, some of these things were probably deliberately selected for horses that could carry guys wearing armor, mm -hmm. which really is heavy. Okay. Now, have you ever seen a Shetland pony? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's very I, short. <laughs> we used to have a Shetland pony. They're they don't put up with much shit. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, they got mad at my cousins for shooting at it with a BB gun. Anyway, I would hope, yeah. Well, it caught one of them and kneeled on her and broke her collarbone. Anyway, the uh, uh, yeah, I respected that horse. Anyway, uh, all right. That would, now, make, a, that would yes. make a great YouTube video if you had a recording of it. It'd probably get a lot of hits. But go on. Sorry. If I just did that while well, let my let them break my cousin's collarbone, I would have been a bad. I wasn't there. I mean, oh, come on. Wow. I'm not. I'm not. I don't. Maybe you I were get, eight, and I don't know. But all right, you're, you're trying too hard. I I don't. I'm not saying I approved of my cousin getting hurt. I'm also not saying I approved of them shooting at it. But that's another story. Anyway, okay. Uh, okay. Now, you know, there are various genes which have people. Have, you know, horses have different variants of them. Some of those variants make the horse bigger and stronger. Some of them make them smaller and clever, so they can open the gate and run off like a Shetland pony. Okay. Uh now, you know, if we had uh, – suppose we had done a GWAS, a genome-wide association study for size and perhaps strength. We could eventually find the, the variants that explain why a Clydesdale is big as a house and why a Shetland pony is basically only good for a kid riding. Mm -hmm. We could find all that, right? Yeah. And if we did that, we would finally know – that Clydesdales are big and that Shetland ponies are small. Well, we, I mean, you know, to put it a little stronger. We, we would know that it wasn't the way they were raised or their diet. Or but their... we already know that because we know that we feed those Shetland ponies. We drug, let them out in the pasture. They get to eat all they want. We were good to our Shetland. And many other people have been good to their – we already knew the environments were quite comparable. Okay. okay? Yes. All right. Now – we have related questions on uh, uh, 
we see differences between people. We won't really know they exist. Do we have the genetics? I mean, like, do we really know that pygmies are short? Or is this just some, you know, are all the pygmies all growing up, you know, being starved to death? I said, well, actually, no, they're not. And yes, we do know they're just short. And there are a bunch of things like that. I mentioned Reich's example. Are we going to finally find out that Swedes are taller than Sicilians? I said, you may finally find out, but I already knew. Now, mind you, there can be cases where it's not as clear. For example, suppose you have populations that have drastic differences in food availability. Mm-hmm. That can affect height. It has affected height. That could be, you know, it could be because the whole country's in trouble or because the lower classes don't get what they would like to eat. Yeah. It used to be the upper classes in England were four or five inches taller than the average Englishman. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that can happen. I said, is that happening in the United States? I said, no, we're the fattest fucking country in the world. Nobody is, you know, it takes an eccentric, unusual situation for somebody to be really short on food. In other words, the United States, I already knew. So some of these things are like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, oh, yes, I was talking about alcoholism. One other thing. It turns out, you see, when alcohol is broken down, it's, the next step is a compound called acetaldehyde. Mm-hmm. And acetaldehyde is... is kind of toxic. It makes you feel sick to your stomach. And it turns out the adaptations that people have that protect them against alcoholism, what they do is they maximize acetaldehyde so that you feel crappier when you drink. And they do it two ways. One of them, some of the mutations more rapidly produce it. So you tend to have a higher level because it's mm-hmm. being, the alcohol is being broken down rapidly. So you end up with kind of a pulse of acetaldehyde that makes you feel like crap. The other way is some of, there's a next step where the acetaldehyde gets broken into other things. Mm-hmm. And some of, some mutations uh, break it down more slowly. So it hangs around. It makes you feel crappy longer. So this is the hangover effect? Uh, partly. But also, you know, there are different regional variants of it. Like there's one which you tend to get a lot of acetaldehyde if you have this gene. It's very common in East Asia. makes you flush red. Yeah, yeah. You may have heard of it or seen it. But it also makes you feel crappy. As I said, but all the strategy is to maximize the the unpleasantness of the acetaldehyde. So what it does is it either builds it up fast or breaks it down slow. And and you see different mixes of these things in different populations that have been long exposed. But we no, I don't think we have. Actually, I don't know. We might actually have some information on this, but we know that as a practical matter, Sicilians are less likely to become alcoholics than Swedes. Mm-hmm. And it boils down to is you know beer or something equivalent has or wine has been available since near the beginning of agriculture for these people who are descended from the, some of the very oldest agriculturalists, mm-hmm. and so people in Southern Europe are somewhat more resistant to to getting utterly shit faced than people in say Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Both of them, by the way, are more resistant than Eskimos or Australian Aborigines who never farmed at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Chinese, you know, they're reasonably resistant, but but they use different variants to give them the resistance. Why why are Ashkenazi Jews, I imagine, have an extremely low rate of alcoholism? I would, well, I don't know all the reasons, although I know they have some of those acetaldehyde variants I would guess part of it is to the extent that you're descended from the Middle East and to the remaining extent to which you're fairly strongly descended from people in Southern Europe, mm. you should have an advantage over the average uh, pole. Okay. I mean, because they don't have much of those kinds of answers. They have some, but not 
nearly as much. So the Italians, the Italians have been drinking just as long as people in Israel. Mm-hmm. Both are, you know, descendants of the earliest farmers, distantly related to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they both have had similar experience. So you take a group which we now take some people from the Middle East. We'll call that forty percent. Then we add some Italians. We're going to end up with a group that's seventy percent descended, seventy percent plus probably descended from people who are decently resistant to alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Now it also might be there might be extra selection if you're in a situation where if you get too drunk, you somehow suffer more than a farmer would who was too drunk. Uh, like I could imagine it's more serious if you're running a bar to be drunk than it is if you're just visiting it. Yeah. Like there's, I've heard it said, there's no worse thing for a bartender than being a guy who can't resist liquor. And for example, in the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, running a bar was a fairly common thing for Ashkenazi Jews to do. Oh. <laughs> yep. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a majority thing. But, you know, they had things they did. Like in the very early days, they still ran, you know, of their settlement in Eastern Europe, they still did some of the uh, money lending thing, which was kind of sort of a, a hybrid between being a commercial finance guy and a pawnbroker. You had guys who were, uh, you know, all the bureaucratic jobs they had. They had guys who were estate managers. They had guys who worked for estate managers. That's probably actually more common. Uh, they had guys who were, uh, who, uh, you know, who were tax farmers, which is an entertaining job where you co- you buy the right to collect this particular tax. The government gets a lump sum. You try to get more than that. Yeah, it'll make you real hated in the community. Well, you know, I think any kind of collecting taxes has that effect. Uh, I'm not sure this is much worse, but yes, it it you know, money lending is not actually the having other people owe you money is actually kind of a dangerous thing. Uh, now, by the way, not quite as much in Poland as it had been in Germany and the Rhineland. It's conceivable because, you know, the amount of persecution got in Poland wasn't real high compared to what it had been back in 1200 or 1100 in, the, in Western Europe. And even there, it wasn't there all the time, but it was there some of the time. And I'm just thinking if you're dealing with a bunch of people in town who are looking for a chance to kill you, again, being drunk might be particularly hazardous. That's I'm just true. guessing. I don't know. Uh, so, but, yeah. I was but just he, thinking, if, sorry, if we do bring back the Neanderthals, if we like clone them, they'll probably they'll be hopeless be drunks. Yeah, we we'll better. We, we should pass laws in advance that you know any any Neanderthal is not allowed to drink. You can't serve them you alcohol. You cannot build a liquor store within 500 yards of the Neanderthal reservation. Yeah, we should do. The, yeah, we should do that now and just you know. <laughs> you know, that is certainly a point of view I've not run into before. Well, I respect it. Because I'm very, it's this is called really a future strategist. I'm very forward-looking, and I uh, I like I that. Thank you, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, by the way, logically, there are probably other things that the Anathols may not be strong on, or the problems they may have particular difficult with, like uh, uh, like what if uh, you know, like for example, there are some species in which rape is a standard strategy, like mm-hmm. mallard ducks. Okay. Yes. I mean, much more so than it is in any human group. Okay. What if the Anathals say, but that's just the way we do it? You're telling us, you know, look, I mean, they're not just saying she was wearing something provocative. She's saying, it's a chick. That's what we do. Do we need to have special, you know, give them either more serious criminal penalties or, you know, feel sorry for them and give less serious ones when they attack somebody? 
I don't know. Uh, but I don't actually know anything about what they did. For all you know, they were, you know, they were the perfect date. I doubt this, actually. Uh, uh, They'll probably find things we do morally abhorrent. Uh, like being a vegetarian or something. You know, they were very likely fairly carnivorous because we, we've done analysis of their, of their cartilage and bones. And mm-hmm. I believe they looked like they were somewhere in terms of how carnivorous they were. They're in between a wolf and a fox. Okay. Which is very few human groups are like, I mean, Eskimos might be close. You know, there weren't a whole lot of vegetables to eat up on the high Arctic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyhow, back, back to these Indo-Europeans. They, uh, we know some things about them by their technology and their artifacts. We know at first they seem to, you know, they were cattle raisers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shows up a lot when they do these linguistic analysis. You know, there's all kinds of words about cattle and how important cattle are. And, you know, and there's myths. And, you know, there are some, there are actually myths that at least parts of the myth seem to go back to these common ancestry of the different European peoples. Uh, for example, Somebody was analyzing, you know, old, literally, uh, myths and fairy stories. They came up with one they think goes back to the common origin of all the Western European, uh, Indo-European groups. Really? Is that because they look at different myths in different areas? And they, and they look for common shared things and older versions and so forth. Now, by the way, this is kind of a new, but it's similar to the linguistic archaeology thing. It's yeah. a mythological archaeology, you might call it. But yeah. it's not crazy. It might make sense. But the one that, the one that seems the oldest one, is that they ha- that they know that isn't in all of the groups, I should say. There's actually something about fighting a dragon that may go back all the way to the beginning of Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. But this one is, it's Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> really? But again, from the linguistic analysis, they think they know some things. It seems to have been kind of a patriarchal society, at least in the words they use to trace relationships and things. You know, instead they would typically talk more about the things on your father's side of the family in terms of how you were related. We know, again, we know something about some of their technology. We know that they, they were probably pretty warlike. Uh, I mean, the fact that all we find is these graves with uh, weapons in them. Uh, as I said, we used to call this group the battle axe culture. Later, I think there was some sort of pottery these guys used that they called corded ware. But battle axe is more descriptive which is why they stopped using it because they didn't like you know this whole picture of people going around conquering and replacing people you know they would usually treat this with contempt but it's clearly what happened yeah to varying extents i mean i think in southern europe you know people sur- the previous population survived a lot more so you know by the way of course that's compatible with all kinds of war and conquest there's lots of patterns of war and conquest in which at least most people survive I mean, every every single country in World War II, most people survived. That doesn't mm. mean the World War II wasn't actually kind of severe. Yeah. Uh, so we don't know. But when the places where they don't survive, you know, where 7% of the English ancestry, a maximum 7%, goes back to the people who built Stonehenge, the early farmers, I said, mm. they hit them pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, but, it, it could have been the diseases they brought, right? We can't. People have suggested that, and I can say a little about it. There was a form of the Black Plague, which genetic analysis has found in some Mm -hmm. of these Yamnaya. Not exactly like today, but it was there. But I would argue to really have a a crushing impact, you need for the people exposed to have not seen it before. But we Mm -hmm. know 
that's you know, it's not like the Amnaya had a huge wall around them that they suddenly burst through. They mm-hmm. traded with the other people who before they started making their moves to to invade. Okay. They weren't. And the other thing is the cases where these things really, really make a difference, if a population has been long isolated from everybody, so they just don't have much disease and they haven't had much, you know, in other words, like American Indians. Yeah. The American Indians, you know, they were terribly damaged by a wave of many different diseases, none of which they'd seen before. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I've seen estimates, you know, it's looking like they've lost more than 90, not, more than 90% of the population, you know, really comparable to an atomic war. Yeah. But that was the sub. It was that they none of them had any special adaptations towards malaria, which many people in the old world have. They didn't have any towards smallpox, which, by the way, we haven't identified. But since Europeans do better, they must have some. They didn't have anything against a whole, you know, against all kinds of things that were uh, had become big problems for a long time in the old world. Now there is no way that the early farmers of Europe were as shielded from disease as the American Indians were. It can't be. Right. And there's also no r- way in which the incoming uh, um, Yamnaya were as tough against disease as Europeans were in 1500. Remember, this is an earlier period. Mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely, but I could be wrong. But I'll tell you, I don't think they brought 10 big new diseases, every one of which they were adapted to, none of which the previous inhabitants of Europe were. Mm-hmm. I don't. It, that is what happened in 1500 with Columbus and the Colombian expansion. That it it can't be what happened. Another thing is a lot of these things that look like somehow, you know, women, you know, like you look at Y chromosomes and things. It looks like the the Yamnaya men contributed a lot more than uh. I mean, women, and whereas the previous inhabitants men contributed a lot less. Mm-hmm. This is not a super likely outcome of pure disease. So it would have had to, if it was a disease, it would have had to be a disease that was more deadly to men than women. Well, I don't really, other than minor differences, I don't really know of any like that. Yeah. Again, it's not impossible. It could be a behavior. I mean, it's unlikely, but it could be some behavioral thing too, right? Where My favorite model, considering we find all these, you know, all our linguistic stuff talks about, like there are things you can reconstruct, a shared shared hints and later populations descended. Mm-hmm. One of them is something, uh, there seems to have been this thing where young men, sort of late teenagers up to about 20 or something, seem to have sort of split off from the community and formed kind of a, uh, a warrior group that went out and attacked the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, not under very good control by the authorities and was usually sort of a separate society for a while until they decided it was time to settle down and get a girl and farm or actually I should say probably raise cattle instead of being a bandit. And these groups were, you know, this is what's projected for early Indo-European history and that these groups were referred to as the something like the wolves. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And there's even suggestions, and again, partly from legends and shared things, but Christ, even from archaeology, that one of the things they did was they would raise a dog when they were in these groups from a puppy, and then when it grew up, they would kill it themselves as a, like yeah. a mark of toughness. Yeah. <laughs> and they have found something that looks very much like this in one of the early Yamnaya groups, mm-hmm. where these dogs, they're all dogs, they're not wolves, they're they're like six years old. They're all cut into little tiny pieces. Uh, and I'll say, 
you know, I don't know if we would have uh, – well, like one thing Reich does a lot, and I think it's bullshit. He's always talking about a mixture, the joys of mixture, all products of mixture. We should <laughs> embrace admixture. So should the Indians have embraced Spanish admixture? I said if they had been able to defeat the Spanish and they had done so, which some people did in some regions at least for a while, I'd say they had a perfect right to try. Yeah. You know, is there something they have to submit to the invaders? Now, by the way, if you said, but there's a lot you could learn from the Spanish, I said, true. There's no reason you couldn't have tried to learn it. But the idea that it's a wonderful thing when they come and burn your capital to the ground or something, I don't think that's necessarily true. By the way, I mean, although for the Aztecs, at least you can make a case they had it coming. The, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but he talks about it as if, you know, this was a mysterious and happy process, and I don't think it was very often. Uh, when, when we had those guys come and they apparently killed most of the, uh, the Taiwanese-type men on on Fiji, said, mm -hmm. I bet they didn't like it a bit. Yeah. I, would, uh, I said, what's the most reasonable thing to do? I said, try to defend yourself. Now, by the way, with disease, with American Indians – Boy, it's kind of impossible to defend yourself. Yeah, they nobody were in a knew, hopeless position. Nobody knew what to do. Well, I mean, like, suppose for some reason the uh, Europeans had obeyed the prime directive, which, by the way, never happens even on Star Trek. But suppose they had. <laughs> suppose the only thing they'd ever done was have a few small trading posts in various parts of North and South America. Diseases would mostly have made it across anyhow. Yeah. And you still would have had this great crisis, even if the Spanish – by the way, the Spanish didn't welcome it. You know, they would have a – like there would be a guy who was a, a soldier of Cortez that says, you are now a baron. You have a, a valley and there's 5,000 people living into it and they're supposed to pay you some taxes. And 150 years later, what it is is a lackadaisical ranch with his descendants living on it and everybody's half Indian and there's only 200 people left in the valley. Yeah. That's what – that's how bad it was. I mean they would have been happier to be lords of a rich and prosperous land, but it collapsed underneath them. And not on purpose. Although, I mean, it is true. If it hadn't collapsed, it's possible the Indians would have successfully revolted and kicked them out, particularly in early days. Mm -hmm. But uh, but still, anyhow. But, yeah, uh, there's every reason to think that the, Yamna, the Yamnaya were somewhere between, uh, you know, probably my model for them is somebody like the Comanche. And, by the way, the Comanche were mean. People were afraid of them. Everybody hated them. Yeah, they would torture people before killing them, wouldn't they? Well, yeah. Although I can only think of one or two movies that are actually realistic enough to show anything like that. There was – it was like one of the last of the – there was sort of people who made a few westerns where they tried to be realistic, which makes it kind of a depressing western. It was uh, Alzana's Raid with Burt Lancaster. Decent movie. But you, know, you have people shooting themselves rather than, rather than be captured by the Comanches. And it wasn't – you know, it wasn't totally crazy. Uh, it bad. By the way, a little cannibalism could you know spice up that what happened there too. Uh, but the Yamnaya they spread all over Europe. Uh, they uh, uh, you know even play, like one place where they didn't impose their language, which was the Basque territory. You still see some DNA from there. Uh, in fact, quite a bit, particularly of a particular Y chromosome. Who knows what happened there? Uh, but uh, but the Amnaya, uh, some of them uh, in the group that had moved up in Germany expanded very far to the east. And in fact, there are places that used to be Indo-European that have since 
been like it looks like Finland used to be into European, then was conquered by Finnish speakers. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to wonder if there's not some er- other areas of northern Russia where the same thing happened. But anyhow, some of the Amnaya spread east and they got all the way to the Urals. And we have found artifacts and things in the Urals. And mm-hmm. where they – one thing they did, they did a lot of metalworking because there's a lot of metal ores and things and also wood to make charcoal to reduce it and so forth. Uh, in the, so they did quite a bit with metallurgy and it appears some groups in that vicinity invented the chariot. Mm-hmm. which led to another phase of Indo-European expansion. These guys went south <coughs> and eventually conquered Iran and India, uh, which is apparently controversial in India. But, uh, I mean, I suppose that we, for all I know it's controversial in Iran, but I haven't heard any Iranian comments mm-hmm. on it. Uh, but they have recently you know, found some DNA work about uh, – you see, there was this – again, 1930 is back when the, the theories were in good shape. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for example, there was a guy in the late 20s uh, who wrote a book called The Aryans, in which he describes the, the prehistory of Europe as you have a bunch of guys from the Middle East who are farmers and not real big who settle, bring uh, and settle almost all of Europe with farming, and then later you have some guys come off the Russian steppes, conquer them, and impose Indo-European languages. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this book was largely correct, not in every detail. Again, we know we all sorts of th- tools he didn't have. Mm-hmm. Back in 1926, uh, Gordon, uh, Gordon Child, an Australian uh, archaeologist, he was pretty sound on this. And then for years, then after a while, people didn't want to hear it anymore. That's really what it was. It wasn't because of all the evidence they found that nobody ever moved, nobody ever mm-hmm. conquered. There was no such evidence. They just said, we, we don't want it to be that way, and we're going to pretend it wasn't. In fact, even he didn't talk about his work later in his life. See, part of it was you had Nazis saying, well, you know, we're descendants of the Aryans who were great conquerors and so forth. Well, are the Aryans the Yagnami? Is that – are there, is yeah. the Aryans another word for it? Okay. Well, actually, the Aryans was you know mostly in this later expansion, which is the uh, – you know, the, the – uh, the groups that expanded, a common phrase they used themselves, which probably means something like the people or, you know, the, the right people or something, they would use words that were Aryans or close to that. For the, in Iran, I mean, the word Iran itself is derived from that and also in India. Okay, I don't know if anybody was using that particular word as early as when they moved into Germany and Poland, mm-hmm. but they were using it in the expansions, a later expansion, which is about 1500 B.C., Okay. Uh, the eastern, this eastern branch that uh, conquered India and so forth. Now, anyhow, uh, so there were guys in the late 30s who said, you know, uh, we, British mainly, who were saying, we think there were other people here who were, you know, part of the Indian ancestry. And then we had Indo Europeans move down and conquered northern India and Iran. And that's where the, the, the majority languages. I mean, there are actually other languages like the, the Dravidian languages in South uh, um, India. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people speak Indo-European languages, uh, uh, and uh, and by the way, that you know they now have some recent ancient DNA. Recent ancient DNA, one of my favorite phrases, uh, from uh, India and the Indus civilization, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's what it was. But there are certain people in India who've invented other theories. They like partly because they're not theories the British put forth, but they're also wrong. Uh, uh, the ancient D, what the ancient DNA shows is there was. An aboriginal population in India, kind of like the hunter-gatherers of Europe, mm-hmm. they had guys move in from the Middle East, from the eastern part of the Middle East, 
from Iranian type area, mm-hmm. and who brought you know the standard Middle Eastern crops and things. And I think they also developed some in uh, India, and they sort of merged with this population that was already there in India. And the merger was closer to a merger of equals than it was in Europe. In in Europe, the great majority of ancestry is from the farmers from the Middle East. Uh, it's probably closer to – it's probably – I would guess the majority, at least at this stage, was from the hunter-gatherers who lived in India. Mm-hmm. But it was 40, 60. I'm not sure. But anyhow, and that's the Indus civilization. It's formed by these people who moved from the Middle East and mixed with the local people in India. And then later – Indo-Europeans show up, conquer the place, their language spreads. Uh, and today, there are, you know, the majority, the biggest chunk of ancestry is the from the original population. Probably the amount that's from the Middle East and the amount that's from the, uh, you know, the, hor- the horse-riding nomad Indo-Europeans mm-hmm. is about similar. Call it 15 or 20 percent each. Mm-hmm. And the rest is the people who were there earlier, who's... Uh, distant cousins of the people in the Andaman Islands. Mm. Uh, and uh, for some reason, there were pe- people in India developed certain ideologically favored explanations, which I think never had any actual support at all, and this completely pulls the rug out from under them. But, well, I mean, I don't know whether how what their reaction will be. No, I haven't heard of anybody getting lynched yet, though. That's good. Uh, but, you know, you can find all kinds of totally meaningless comments saying, well, you haven't really proven X. The answer is actually Reich has. Uh, at least, you know, for some of these questions, at least. And certainly, we don't know every detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, okay. With the Yunnan, were they the last major group to uh, invade Europe? Uh, well, there have, uh, in terms of making a really big difference, I would say yes. Uh, the uh, Again, there are things at the edges. I mean, for example, you can find some North African ancestry in Spain from the time that, of the Arab, which was probably in those days mostly Berber conquest. I mean, it's not a, it's not majority, but there's some, you know, 15% or something in southern Spain. You can find you can find this and that in various places. I mean, the Ashkenazi Jews are a product of a more recent group of people from the Middle East, of whom, by the way, we don't know a whole lot about the actual ancestors, except they're probably from the Middle East. From uh, we might know more soon if somebody bothers to look closely at that. But anyhow, you know, they're they're. Forty percent that there are, uh, uh, you know, Hungarians have some people from the east, although they're mostly similar to their neighbors, like you know, Austrians and Germans and Poles in their ancestry. Uh, one recent expansion, although it is, it is, it was itself a, a particular Indo-European group, was the expansion of the Slavs, sort of in the late years and the after the Roman Empire. The Slavs are another Indo-European subgroup. They probably originated somewhere near Poland or Western Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, they had a way of life that seemed to work pretty well when other peoples were, was disintegrating. Uh, you know, like when the Eastern Roman Empire, much of it was falling apart. Uh, Slavs would move into these places and do okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these people expanded from this area up in Northeastern Europe. They expanded to a little bit west uh, up into say up north, up into Prussia, they expanded a long way into uh, Russia. Uh, they expanded uh, to the south into Yugoslavia and Greece. Uh, Greece has a significant amount of Slavic ancestry, mm-hmm. but you know the language didn't stick. But various Slavs moved into places in Greece, and uh, and and you can see it uh, if you look at their genetics. 
maybe it's 15% of the ancestry. Uh, and it's all in mainland Greece. There's none of it in the islands. Mm-hmm. The Byzantines held on to all the islands. The, they were, they, but, but, you know, during the various times in the Middle Ages when things were going poorly for the Byzantines, their people just sort of wander in, land somewhere, start farming, kill a few people, get in the way. Over much longer periods, mix in with the rest of the Greeks. Mm-hmm. This is why you can actually find somebody blonde in Greece occasionally. Uh, well, that's actually one interesting thing. Uh, like if you look at the Sardinians, you know what fraction of Sardinia? You know, they're the purest living example of the old farmers. Mm-hmm. You know what fraction of them, say, have red hair or blonde? Oh, uh, no. Essentially zero. Now, the, the early farmers had kind of light skin, but, you know, uh, you know, different colors of hair, all dark hair. Mm-hmm. As far as we could tell, but the Indo-Europeans, at least some of them, seem to have brought things like blondism and redheadism, uh, and it actually also looks like that has increased with time since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you were talking about, how have people changed in the past? On earlier question, I mean, in Europe, even these past few thousand years, there's a very interesting new technique which takes quite a bit of high-quality data to do, but can tell you interesting things. They're looking at how have the British changed over the past two thousand years. And they have changed. Uh, they've become more tolerant of milk. You can you can sort of understand that one. Yeah, yeah. They've become a little taller. Uh, babies have gotten bigger heads. Women have gotten wider hips, which is probably good if the babies are going to have wider, <laughs> bigger heads. Uh, people have gotten blonder. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of other changes that have made that basically look like stuff with insulin metabolism. I would guess it means they've gotten a little bit tougher against uh, – uh, things like diabetes. Mm-hmm. Again, diabetes also varies a lot depending on whether you have people been farming a long time or not. People have been farming a long time are better at dealing with a lot of carbohydrates in their diet. People who have not are not. Mm-hmm. And that has particularly, you know, type 2 diabetes. It's a huge problem with American Indians, particularly ones that haven't farmed much. It's a huge problem with Australian Aborigines. Uh, I mean, everybody has some problems with it, but it's not, you know, it's not a huge problem in most of Europe. Or, I mean, like, like I, I'll define a huge problem: forty percent of everybody on the Navajo reservation has type two by the time they're forty. Okay, what are numbers in some place like Germany? I don't remember exactly, but they're a lot less. Uh, you know, ten percent by sixty, or or twenty percent by sixty. You know, something like that. Uh, China also doesn't have a fantastic problem with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, hunter-gatherers generally do. It wouldn't surprise me if the Mediterranean peoples are more resistant to it than you know Scandinavians. But I don't actually know the numbers on that, so I won't I won't claim I know. But they ought to be, you know, because they've been farming longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like people talk a lot about the advantages of the Mediterranean diet, but I wonder part of that advantage is probably just being Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the uh, Anyhow, so the Indo-Europeans did some other things. Like some of them in some went much farther east. We found some areas of Siberia that we can like tell by the archaeology and actually I guess also the genetics that but there is reason to believe that some of these, after some wanderings, ended up in what's now western China. Uh Xinjiang, the westernmost province of China. Mm-hmm. We have found uh, uh we found a lot of documents that go back about twelve hundred 1300 years. There used to be a population that lived, these were basically oasis towns 
uh, along what we know we call the Silk Route, you know, trade routes that right. went along. There's a desert there, and there's uh, on the, there's mountains to the north and south of this desert, and there's some water comes down from those mountains, and so people can farm in in, in, in certain areas on the north. And one of them is one branch of the Silk Road, the other is the other. Uh, towns like Kashgar. Mm-hmm. Which just has a neat exotic sound to it, if you ask me, by the way. Anyhow, there are still people who are at least partly related to these people living there, Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of Chinese who are recently moved there. The Uyghurs wish they could be independent of China and say, well, you know, we used to live here and you've conquered it and settled it full of Chinese, to which the answer is, yep, but there's probably not much they can do about it. But it used to be they were the main population uh, and, and there was a time in which they spoke an Indo-European language. A, a, one that we did hadn't even known existed, but we found these written records from around 800 AD mm-hmm. uh, in several of these towns. Many of them were uh, Buddhist scriptures translated into this language, but since we you know knew what those books were in other languages and in various Indian or Chinese languages, yeah. we could then easily translate them. And then all of a sudden we knew a new language, which was dubbed Takarian for because we. Because there used to be some people named a character who lived within a thousand miles of this area. <laughs> it's probably a crappy name, but it sounds nice, so that's all I care. Anyhow, the funny thing about Tikarian is, I mean, we have a whole new Indo-European language. Uh, and by the way, you can see signs of it because they will find mummies in the sand in these deserts of guys who are six feet tall redheads. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see the occasional little redheaded kid who also looks a bit Chinese running around some of these towns. Mm-hmm. There are still ancestry some of the ancestry in this region still comes from this population <coughs> and uh, 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 so their language it was sort of odd because it had some similarities but it seemed to be to western our western indo-european language it's like it had some similarities to celtic mm-hmm. or or latin uh but it's there. We can read it. And so that's that's another part of the information they use in figuring out things about the early days of the Indo-Europeans. So I'm trying to think. One of the far – of course, if we count after uh, Columbus and everything, Indo-European wow. language spread further yet. Today, probably just under half of the human race has an Indo-European language as their native language. Mm-hmm. And probably the most important international language is English, which, of course, is also uh, – a rather complicated, mixed-up Indo-European language that's, you know, the core is Germanic with all kinds of French and Latin and, uh, you know, all sorts of other random words stuck in it. Mm-hmm. But at uh, uh, any rate, you know, one of the interesting things about all this is how, I think, is how the, the, the linguists did not go too far wrong. They just didn't. I mean, all the... Uh, Archaeologists would tell them, you know, all your ideas about people's expanding and conquering, that's all wrong. The linguists, as far as I could tell, simply ignored them. <laughs> that was that, that was right. Another group of people who were relatively isolated from the nonsense, mm-hmm. uh, archaeologists in Eastern Europe. Oh. Mm-hmm. You see, evidently, you you know, political correctness, you know, like evidently if you're already a communist, it kind of shields you from political correctness. <laughs> uh uh, so, by the way, a lot of that work didn't always get w- well understood in the West because you probably had to learn to read Bulgarian or Russian or something. But yeah. there was lots of work about the early farmers because you know some of their biggest and most interesting things are in the Balkans, mm-hmm. so places in Yugoslavia, places in Romania, places in Bulgaria. Uh, 
that's where a lot of the most important digs were. There were also, uh, and it's for the Indo-European things, lots of, you know, most of that area is in Russia. There was a whole branches of Russian archaeology, and they didn't always get together very much with Western archaeologists, which may have been a good thing, as we now see. Right. Since, uh, but by the way, it was so fashionable that even people who are about as reasonable as people get in this area, even when they thought that there had been expansion off the step of people in languages, they would say, but it's mostly just, well, somehow they persuaded people <laughs> or, you know, their stories were so good that people learned the language to learn. The, I mean, you know, we're trying to think of peaceful mechanisms to spread. It does happen. It just doesn't happen very much. And it happened less in prehistory. Some of this stuff is the things that happens in more sophisticated cultures, uh, you know, where you have things like money and books and stuff like that. Uh, but, for example, there's a guy named David Anthony who did a lot of good work, uh, has a good book out called uh, – it's uh, what was it? Uh, the Horse, the Wheel, and Language. It's about trying to understand the beginnings of the Indo-Europeans. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first part of the book is a short but very well-done explanation of the linguistics. And the second part is a whole lot of obscure but unfortunately important Russian archaeology. Uh, I mean, you, you will go mad just trying to remember the names of all the different uh, uh, towns and places where they found these things and stuff. But he originally assumed that somehow these languages had spread by something other than the movement of the people who spoke <laughs> it, or at least mostly. You know, mostly it was people, you know, would, don't you wish you were into European too? You know, wouldn't you learn it the way people learn French uh, <laughs> it, when it was the language of diplomacy or something? Uh, and and I think he was probably a little surprised. You know, he works with Reich and Patterson and so forth. He gets to see things as they happen. I'm sure he's <coughs> pretty convinced that things weren't quite as happy as he would dream. <coughs> he was, for example, involved in that thing with the sacrificed dogs. Oh. <coughs> Although even then there were odd parts of it. He said, uh, you know, because it's, it's really hard for people to learn how to kill other people. And I'm thinking <laughs> – I mean, what am I supposed to do? Uh, demonstrate that that's false? Because I, mean, uh, I, there have been people who have tried to make such arguments uh, that it's really hard to get people to learn to, you know, chop an enemy down in the heat of battle. Says I don't really think so. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's always been something people were pretty good at doing. And if they weren't good, they learned in the first about as soon as there was a guy in front of them with a with a weapon. Well, you think if you did any hunting, that would you know, get you. Well, you see. That. Well, look, we have cultural problems in understanding the past. Uh, most people who are highly educated in this country, even more so going to social sciences, don't never hunted anything in their life, never hung out with anybody who did, and it feels strange to them. Now, intellectually, they probably know that a lot of people did do this, one hopes, but they, they don't feel like they really believe it. Real people couldn't have shot a deer, drained its blood, <laughs> gutted it, cooked it, had eaten it. That's just yeah. not possible, right? Yeah. But, well, I mean, like, how much have you hunted? Oh, never. Well, on video games quite a bit, but... Well, yeah. oh, maybe that'll turn this around, yeah. Uh, did you eat anything in the video game? I'm just curious. Do they do that? <sighs> See, most recently, I've been hunting zombies in, in virtual reality you, video games. I don't games, think so. you... Which one? You can't eat them. Um, the... Which game? What's yes. called? I forgot. Death something... Oh, God, at least it's not the one my kids are always playing. I have enough of that one. What do they play? Something that's a little obsolete, but they like it. Right. It's a zombie, killing zombie game. Uh, 
I don't remember. March, I think, but no, it's older than that. At any rate, uh, the, the, whatever they're doing is. At any rate, it's hard for people to believe that anybody wasn't exactly like them. Now, I think I have a relative strength because I don't believe anybody was ever exactly like me, and this gives me an advantage. I don't even believe that the average professor is exactly like me. Uh, now, by the way, I have never done much hunting, partly because there isn't a whole lot in central Illinois. There's just farms. But, for example, uh, I went out with my dad and a couple of my an, an uncle and some cousins. They had a dog they were going to use to catch a raccoon, which we knew was living in a dead hollow tree. In some, in some area back behind where my uncle lived out in the countryside, a place where there actually were some trees. Uh, and, and it was, you know, we, we start a fire, the raccoon comes out, it jumps into a neighboring creek. They're very good in water. Mm-hmm. And the dog jumps after it because, see, a real coon dog would be hesitant because they know the coons are very good in water. But this dog didn't know anything. And it jumps in and immediately the raccoon holds its head under. <sighs> And the normal reaction of dogs is that I'm going to die. I give up. <sighs> but we managed, we waded in because it wasn't very deep. And we, you know, yelled and screamed and got the raccoon out. And then we had to give the dog artificial respiration. And that dog was always kind of slow after that. Okay, uh-huh. there. That's my hunting story. <laughs> but I find it possible to imagine that people got hungry and shot deer and ate them. And I think for a lot of people, that's hard. Uh, well, let me give you an example. Uh, there was a young lady who was, was – I think she was doing this work at Stanford. She was trying to look at the genetics of the Yemnaya moving into northern Europe, you know, recent contemporary stuff. And she thought she had found evidence. Uh, you know, there are a couple of ways to do this. One is by looking at Y chromosomes and mitochondria, but you can also look at differences on the X chromosome. See, the X chromosome mainly – Two-thirds of the times it comes from the, the mother, one-third from the male. So mm-hmm. you can also see some evidence. Like suppose the question is, was this group that invaded mostly male? Did it mostly replace or was it disproportionately male? Another kind of evidence you can look for is on the X chromosome. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfectly reasonable. And she did some work that indicated that there was a, a highly male-biased invasion. By the way, I'm not sure that analysis is right the Reich and Patterson didn't think so. They think it's hard to tell, but that's not the important point. I mean, look, when we do find a way to find out, that will be interesting. But her point was she suggested that she thought that, you know, to a very large extent, the fathers of the next generation were the Yamnaya rather than the local men. And she mm-hmm. came pretty close to the video game theory. Her theory was, well, Yamnaya, you know, they probably do interesting things and you know, there's something that's attractive about them, so the women just walk over to them and marry them and leave the local guys, and all of this is done without any violence. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. My theory says that those local farmers gave up their local chicks when they were dead. Now, yeah, this or, is they, just, yes. or they knew they had no hope. Uh, by the way, there are actually interesting patterns. There were certain Y chromosomes that were com- pretty common in some of these earlier farm groups that are rare today, hint, hint, but they're not – they're less rare in certain places, like certain areas way up in the mountains or sometimes on islands. Mm. Like there are areas up in the Apennines in, uh, in Italy where you can find where other places like overall Italy as a whole, G2A, Y chromosome, which was probably the majority of guys had it uh, among the uh, early farmers – this one particular variety of Y chromosome. Uh, today it was majority then. It's less than – it's a, around 1% in Italy now. 
maybe something happened, but it happened less than the Apennines, where it got up to 8 or 11%. There's some mountains in central France, the Massif Central. Okay, there are, you can find some of these, you know, from the old days, there's more of those guys. Or the, you know, so you, I, when they gave up, I think they hid. They went to places the other guys didn't want as much. Yeah. Uh, this is all, by the way, they're actually kind of similar patterns for in some places where invaders came at the end of uh, the Roman Empire, where sometimes people still speaking uh, Latins held out. Uh, for example, there were people in the Balkans, you know, a lot of Slavs were moving in, mm-hmm. but there are still people who spoke a language kind of, and they're an ethnic group. They're called uh, Vlachs, V-L-A-C-H-S. And they speak something that's kind of related to Romanian, and they tended to survive as shepherds up in hills that weren't really any good for farming. And scattered all over the Balkans, there were until very recently, probably still are some, flocks. Mm-hmm. They were still speaking a Romance language. So the point is people, you know, you know, people just don't lie there. They usually hide to the extent yeah. that – or they go somewhere that nobody else wants. Mountains could be like that. Uh uh, islands sometimes can be like that. Uh, so, but anyhow, all this, you know, Amy Goldberg was making this argument that, you know, maybe women just found the Amnaya more attractive. And I'm saying, I don't think it would have mattered if they had. If, you know, we have some little village that hasn't been destroyed yet. It says, well, you know, but they're taller. By the way, they may have been a little bit taller. Mm-hmm. Or some of them are blonde, which everybody says, what is that? Anyhow, isn't that weird? By the way, you know, when, like I've heard people say, well, you know, blondes are, you know, they're sexually selected. Everybody finds it attractive. I said, I will bet you the first time anybody saw somebody who's blonde, they thought they were a freak or a ghost or something. You know, I mean, somebody just looked entirely different. I bet it wasn't a huge plus. Yeah. I bet. Uh, oh, by the way, there's one interesting thing. You know, there was another group of people who appears to have lived close to the Indo-Europeans because there are borrowings back and forth in their languages. Mm-hmm. The the group of people that spoke that were the root of the people who spoke the Finnish and, and that family of languages, Finno-Ugrians, mm-hmm. they lived in forest areas not very much farther north in Russia. And, oh. then, and you can – by the way, this helps pin down the – was it really the Amnaya? I said, well, whoever was – hey, first, you know, we had the linguistics. We knew that they were near certain other groups by the linguistic borrowings. We – you know, there's all – there were many hints, but you see, it used to be there was sort of a contest. See, who can come up with the origin for the Indo-European languages that is the stupidest? <laughs> uh, see, what people would usually do says, well, you know, these, this was an important piece of history. These people really amounted something. So they must have arisen in my backyard. So German scholars would say, well, the Indo-Europeans must have originated in Germany. And every, I mean, Iranians knew that it, you know, it, Recently, that's what they were saying in India. They must have originated in India, yeah. but they didn't because, you know, I mentioned those uh, hunter-gatherers in India that have sort of a distinct genetic profile. Mm-hmm. Everybody in India has got some of that. If you left India, you'd still have some of it. But you look at populations outside of India, hardly any of them have it. I mean, and even then they're close, you know, like just over the border in, India, in Iran or something. By the way, when I say India, geographically, that includes Pakistan, uh, uh, like, is there a sign that these people with this signature have moved very far out of India? I said, oh, we know they didn't. It's not there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's local 
It's inside baseball Indian politics. I don't pretend to know a lot about it. It just happens to be mistaken. Uh, I mean, I can't say they're crazier than us. I mean, that would be look crazy in different ways. I'd kind of say they were less crazy than us right now, but that's another story. The linguistic stuff, uh, you know, one of the things about it is it never told you dates. Although mm -hmm. it could tell you some things, like you could say, like these people, uh, you know, it was after copper was being used when, when, when we had this group split off to become the different Indo-European groups because they share a word for copper. You know, the technology tells you something. Right. People were not incredibly wrong. Uh, the people who were incredibly wrong were the archaeologists who simply said, we don't like hearing about Aryan conquest. Again, like I said, the Germans would say, we are the descendants uh, to, of a group that uh, expanded and conquered much of the world and half the languages of the world are descended from it. You know, these groups were the Aryans. I said, well, they probably called themselves different in 3000 BC, but that is what they called themselves but they, by the time they conquered Iran and uh, India. And, and you are partly descended from them, perhaps 40%, along with some admixture from um, the earlier uh, farmers and uh, hunter-gatherers and so forth. Uh, but you're still Hitler and you're still an asshole. None of this helps. Uh, and like I said, like, well, we, if the Nazis believed it, we can't believe it. I said, well, the Nazis probably believed in brushing your teeth. What are you going to do? Yeah, that's the saying. Reverse stupidity is not intelligence. So you can't I mean, reverse what Hitler said. And, the and that's what the Nazis were early believers that smoking caused lung cancer and should be stopped. Yeah. Earlier than anywhere else. By the way, it, it wasn't just German – probably it was just German researchers, but the actual government latched onto it and agreed with it. So it was Nazis to some extent pushing this. Mm -hmm. And it actually got in the way later because – People started doing similar uh, uh, epidemiology and say, you know, boy, it makes a real difference if you smoke. And there mm -hmm. were people who would say, well, that's what the Nazis said. Are you going to listen to this guy? <laughs> this was essentially in the early 50s. There were people who used that as an argument. I said, I'm sure the argument said that you should make the armor on the front of your tank thick. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the point is you – like you could say, you can't believe it just because a Nazi said it. True. But you can't yeah. disbelieve it either just because a Nazi said it. Uh, but that was part of it. That was part of it. There was also resonances that I don't, I had probably never participated in enough to really understand the emotional feelings involved. But people say, uh, well, you know, but all the smacks of colonialism. I said, yeah, what's your point? I mean, you know, colonialism or groups expanding, dominating each other. That's happened every now and then. You've done it, probably. I mean, assuming you're a member of a very large group, because, like, how did the Bantu get over over most of Africa? Well, they they moved out, they farmed, and they beat the people who were there before, mm -hmm. along with mixing with them to some extent. I said, every. Well, what about the Chinese? I said, well, they used to mostly be a group in South China. They expanded, also incorporating later groups. But, yeah, they chased a lot of people clear out of China, down into Southeast Asia. Well, what about Southeast Asia? Well, they used to be occupied by short, dark people who only exist in a few little areas now. And somebody from South China replaced and conquered them, and so on, and so on. I mean, so most we're, places... We're the, we're the descendants of the people who were the successful at conquering and mostly, mostly. killing... There are a few people who managed to, like, hide somewhere uh, mm -hmm. or go someplace nobody else wanted. Uh, that's probably true a little bit of the Sardinians. Although, you know, even there, before they landed in Sardinia, there were probably people there who were some sort of hunter-gatherer it's uh, and they probably mostly replaced them the guys who were farmers of some sort so but but I'll tell you it's been probably 7,000 years since the last big replacement on Sardinia so that's 
Uh, another interesting thing is a lot of American groups until Columbus and, and so forth, there weren't as many waves of replacement in, in the Americas. Not as many, some probably, but you find you don't find the same tendency to find a huge area with people all speaking related language. You may, you know, medium-sized areas maybe, but not, mm. you know, half a, not a whole continent or something. You know, like Bantu languages cover most of Southern Africa, or or related Niger Kordofanian languages. Uh, Semitic covers a big and related languages covers pretty much all of North or used well even counting before Arabic replaced it. People were speaking languages distantly related to Arabic. Mm. The, the Berber languages are dist. Uh, they're called Afroasiatic languages. <coughs> Ancient Egyptian <coughs> was distantly related to Arabic and Hebrew and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 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 but th- this is a widespread all the way across North Africa. Much you know today, you know much of the Middle East, even in uh, Roman times, all of it, most actually not all of it, but most of it today, not Iran, but the rest of it. Pretty much. So, if you're a member of a really large group, typically that expanded and rolled over some other people. Mm-hmm. I think the only way to avoid it is you move. Like American Indians in uh, in North America, prob they may not have rolled over anybody. There may have been nobody there before. Uh, but that's another story. Yeah, uh, we should talk about that some other day. I will say one hit though. One thing people noticed in doing, which helped elucidate the Indo-European stuff. Mm-hmm. They noticed they could measure these degrees of relatedness mm-hmm. using these interesting algorithms on, on these on these tremendous amounts of data we've recovered. And they found that the northern Europeans were, for example, more closely related to American Indians than southern Europeans were. Mm-hmm. And it was clear. It was also true that they were more closely related to American Indians than they were to, say, the Chinese or Koreans. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there was a part of the ancestry of the original Indo-Europeans, the Amnaya, was a group. You know, that were, what they finally deduced was there ought to be a group that contributed some groups moving east and some moving west. Mm-hmm. Part of that group must have joined the American Indians. Part of it must have joined the Indo-Europeans. And later they found some uh, some bones deep in Siberia that had exactly the genetics needed. To come up to 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 have the right degree of relatedness to to you know what like this is an interesting thing they could deduce that a certain population existed from patterns of genetics even when nobody in that population exists today at least not in pure form and when they don't even have any skeletons of them yet they're just saying you know uh, it's like there were certain reactions where where energy was apparently disappearing. Nuclear yeah. reactions, you couldn't see where it went. So Enrico Fermi said, there must be a small, hard-to-detect particle being emitted. Since I'm Italian, I will call it the little neutral one, the neutrino. <laughs> but the point is, he was right, and later it was detected. So, see, at first that particle existed only as something that logically should exist, but there was no direct evidence for it. This group in northern Siberia, for a while, it, it was a logically, it was a group that had to exist, but there was no direct evidence of it. And then they found it, uh, which we are typically calling the ancient North uh, Eurasians, although I like to call them the Cybermen, uh, mainly because some of my kids are Doctor Who fans. Uh, but uh, there, anyhow. Uh, so we kind of know, by the way, there's still details to be straightened out. There was a very, very early branch off the uh, Indo-European language tree 
which is clearly related, but you know, people are arguing about whether they really came off the group from the uh, out of the plains or not. The Hittites and the related mm-hmm. languages. Right now, I'd say we're we're still working it out. I don't think we know, but we will. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah. Thank you very much. We should probably wrap it up. Okay. Is there um, so the y- Yamada done? Sorry, Yamani. Yam, Yamnaya. Yamnaya. Yeah, Yamnaya done extremely well genetically. And... Oh yeah, I mean Yamnaya landed on the moon, or people who are partly Yamnaya. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and those are the only people who have landed on the moon. They've all been partly Yamnaya, I, I might add. Yeah. Uh, every one of them. Uh, I think probably quite nasty people. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you can't make an omelet without evidently breaking millions of eggs uh, and, and heads. Uh, I would guess that they were, uh, although you know we don't. It, we we know at least that the other, the earlier farmers were not as successful at violence as the Amnaya were, but you know they may have been mean. Maybe they just weren't very good at it. Yeah, Again, that's, we that's know true. they weren't perfect because we certainly found cases where villages, you know, this is an era where they're the only people living there, where village, somebody got, they got completely massacred and, you know, men, women and child, everybody killed. We've seen occasional cases of that, but we know nothing about the reasons or anything. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, Greg. And uh, thank you all for listening to The Future Strategist. If you like this podcast, please give it a high ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so more people are likely to find it. Also, please consider joining the podcast's Facebook group, which is just called Future Strategist. Greg blogs at westhunt.wordpress.com. Goodbye.